WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 310. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG headquarters building in a northern Atlanta suburb. In today's episode, a battery fire aboard an Airbus, South Korean aerial display jet crashes, an update on the flat earth astronaut guy, more news, your feedback, and the latest Plain Tales installment, the Happy Bottom Riding Club. So get all settled in tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. Flight 310 is ready for pushback. Hello everyone and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. I am Captain Jeff, a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier based in Atlanta. And joining me today from her beautiful lakeside estate in South Carolina. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Stephanie Plummer. Hello, Captain Jeff. Glad to see you again on a weekend for a change. So nice uh, Saturday morning I've been having here and looking forward to a great show with you all today. And joining us from his sprawling country estate southwest of London, professional photographer, former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, currently a captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick Anderson. That was a knock-on. He, he knocked that ball on. I'm not kidding. Right there. And the ref, ref, then the ref's blown him up. <laughs> I think, I think oh, sorry, Captain yeah. Nick is on the wrong show, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Today's installment of rugby commentary. Momentarily distracted there. That's a knock-on. Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to be uh, back on the show, and I'm I am paying attention, honest. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to move on here then. Get back to your game. And last but not least, we have from his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana Colton. Well, hello, everybody. Great to be back and and seeing all these lovely faces this Saturday now afternoon. Um, Looking forward to, of course, another uh, disappointing show. (laughs) No, no, no. Fantastic show. Uh, Lots to talk about this week. uh, Lovely, uh, lovely day here in the Atlanta area. If you're a duck or a fish. Mm Mm-hmm. That is for sure. That is for sure. Let's let, uh, start with that then, huh? We play our little music in the background here. Public domain. <laughs> Copyright free. If you say so. <laughs> U.S. Air Force Airman of Note singing about the weather. Can't get enough of this. Together. Oh, the weather, weather outside is frightful. 
but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let, let it snow, go. yeah, let it snow. Wait a minute, I hear dogs barking or something. What's going on? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I just got in from a trip this morning uh, from Kansas City, and the weather outside we never, was delightful. We would have never been able to tell. By oh, well, if you're watching the video, yeah, I didn't have time to change out of my uniform. So, um, but I, I dressed down a little bit. No identifying features on here, I don't believe. I don't have my tie on. Or... Other than the yellow bars. Yeah, but, you know, we're not the only airline. Acme's not the only airline that has these uh, gold Stripes on the epaulets. Yeah, Hackney Red use uh, gold stripes. Oh, really? Dirty gold stripes at that. I'm disappointed in you, in you Captain Jeff. Well, oh, it just shows his age and experience. Well, it's not, they're not as dirty as yours, Dana. That's true. Mine are, mine are a paltry puke yellow now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, came into Atlanta this morning, and uh, it's yuck outside. So, we had to do a Category 3. Well, I briefed for a Category 3. Autoland approach because I didn't want to have to do it more than once. And uh, I'm glad that we did that because even though it kind of, I took my first officer's uh, landing away from him. Of course, I didn't land either. The airplane did. But uh, anyway, it was a good thing that we did because the weather was really, really foggy here in Atlanta, but made it on and uh, on time at the gate. So success. Um, so, what have you all been up to uh, since the last show? Let's start with uh, girls first. Stephanie. Me? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Um, well, I was not sure to... you're a girl. I was just making sure I heard correctly. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> okay, Nick, you go. First. No, there was a little. <laughs> exactly. He's he's preoccupied. I'm not a girl. Yeah, we'll get to Nick last so he can enjoy the, the rugby for a moment. Um, well, actually, I was going to try and go flying this morning as well, but um, the weather is <clears throat> quite similar here to what it is in Atlanta. I just pulled up Charlotte's METAR again, and the let's see, the temperature and dew point are exactly the same. Mm. So what does that mean? That means fog. Um, and it's sticking around quite a bit longer today than it did yesterday, but it's also a lot, um, there's more moisture in the air today, and it's supposed to rain a whole bunch later on, so... Uh, visibility is a quarter mile and RVR on runway one eight center is, <clears throat> excuse me, 1600 feet to 2000 feet. So not the greatest for general aviation flying, uh, today. So uh, yeah. what's an RVR? Your runway visual range. Okay. Just making so, sure. Yes. Okay. Got my acronyms, uh, sorted well, out. You there. know, maybe the you'll have to give all the details on that because I don't remember that. Yes. yes. Well, hey, listen, it is an aviation educational show. Yeah. Well, this is true. Maybe the first time anybody's ever heard an RVR before. Oh, no. They That's hear true. it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. We've mentioned it. But if they're just joining us for the first time, probably. Yeah, but not the way I say it. I've, yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. No one's ever heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> what the, excuse me. What the heck so, is he talking uh, about? I don't know. <laughs> so, did not go flying this week, which is a little disappointing, but that's okay. There's plenty more time in the future to do that. And um, actually, tried to sleep in. I did not set an alarm this morning and somehow still woke up at 5.30, which is the time I get up every morning, um, but managed to go back to sleep for a little while, watch some Olympics, listen to that other fine um, aviation podcast, Plane Talking UK, that was on this morning as well. And um, yeah, finally rolled out of bed, grabbed a Starbucks and uh, joined you folks. So nothing else real exciting this week, mostly been been working. So Okay. 
Yeah, but you showed us the cutest thing in the world. Oh, yeah. Taco Taco took the trip with me to Starbucks this morning, and he gets a little cup full of whipped cream, whipped topping, and he loves that. So he's spoiled. Incredibly spoiled. We all. We all are. <laughs> yes. Okay. Excellent. Um, so they sent ladies to Cuban. That sounds nice. So, um, Captain Nick, how's the uh, rugby podcast going there? Well, the score hasn't changed. The scoreline's the same. Uh, we're back in the uh, Welsh uh, half, which is nice. They came damn close to our line. But uh, there you go. It's the Six Nations. Uh, and uh, this is a bit of a grudge match, England-Wales. Uh, not much as much as a grudge match as England-Scotland, but Wales are more likely to prove to be very good opponents. Excuse me. Ah. Anyway, the cough uh, so it's a good match. I've got it on the big screen here. Um, well, I hope that uh, this is not an um, inconvenience for you to uh, be on the show with us today. But well, I don't have the um, I don't have the commentary turned up. That's <laughs> that's the only inconvenience. But uh, anyway. give the, the captions on for it. Uh, yeah, but I don't know how to do that on my television. No. But there you go. All right. Um, so what have I been doing? Not, not a lot. I uh, haven't been flying since that uh, positioning flight I mentioned in the last show. I was supposed to be in the simulator uh, late tonight, uh, which would have gone through to the wee hours, but someone much more needy uh, took that away. Uh, so I'm going to be on a little block of standby towards the end of the evening, um, which is only going to be an hour and a half. Uh, and they they can only uh, allocate, according to the rules, only allocate me another sim, which I don't think they're going to do. So I'm expecting a quiet few days. They did ask me if I would like to go to Miami today, but I said I can't. I've got an APG show to do. So there you go. Oh, wow. <laughs> See, he's got his priorities in life. Absolutely. Oh, I like that. Thank you. Here's a no, special welcome. something for you right there. Got the bell. Ah. Um, well, good. Um, now, did we, did you actually talk about the positioning, repositioning, or whatever flight uh, on the last show, or was that a special uh, crew log that uh, our fine coffee fun oh, cadre? Actually, yeah, it was probably just. I, I tweeted a lot about oh, it. Yeah, it was probably okay. uh, just for the coffee fun cadre. But I mean, uh, just a quick mention. I, uh, I, we have an, a new uh, or an aircraft that is returning to the fleet. It's not new, really. Uh, one we mothballed and are bringing back out. So uh, they bought it out from Tarbs. Uh, put it at Gatwick, um, worked on it for a while, then it needed to go back up to Manchester to be painted because when we sent it back to the people we leased it from, we were supposed to return it uh, with no markings on. So that had been done, but now we've decided we're going to use it again, mainly because uh, of all those uh, bin liners that are parked around the hangar. Um, we are uh, painting it up and putting it back on the line. So Airbus, you know, fill in the gap. And it was a short day for you? <laughs> so we were only 10 minutes in, and we're already uh, Boeing bashing. Wow. Oh, no, no, I wouldn't dare. Uh, no, the positioning flights never go particularly smoothly, and uh, they always take an age. So I may, I make rather a big thing of it. But uh, I know very well if I see a, a trip from uh, Gatwick to Manchester, which I know is going to take barely half an hour, uh, it's going to take me all day to achieve that. And it's just the same. If it was a Gatwick Heathrow, it would probably be just the same. That's probably about a 12-minute flight. And, it, you know, you, you get up at 6 a.m. and you get home at 7 in the evening. That's uh, how long it takes to do a 10-minute flight. It's ridiculous, but there you go. It was very uh, very interesting, um, your 
uh, crew log. So, hey, one more reason to join the Coffee Fun Cadre to get uh, great oh, content. Oh, absolutely. Content. In fact, I just put one out today, which will get posted in due course, I'm sure, because yeah, I'm we just studying for my... <laughs> I'm just studying for my sim, and uh, one of the discussion areas are all the uh, performance factors uh, around the various V-speeds. So I was studying V-speeds, so I've done a little technical bit uh, for those in, in the Patreon world uh, about V-speeds. I need to listen to that. I might learn something. <laughs> I need you to get away from my final approach course or there's a Boeing coming up your butt. <laughs> oh, you can go so many ways with that, that one. Will, we'll never get Oops. old. Oops. I love it. All right. Uh, let's see. Dana, how have you been? I'm doing great. Speaking of crew logs, maybe I'll figure that out some day in the in the near future and how to go ahead and submit those into you guys. Uh, not sure I have all the right technology. Maybe need a little investment, but Jeff and I can talk about that. You need an later. iPhone yeah, with well, headphones. Yeah. Well, I think he has an iPhone. <laughs> well, you I have it, but I don't know how to use it. Uh, we'll show you how to do it. That's like a two-minute tutorial. We'll, we'll uh, get you caught up to speed after the show. I'm only kidding. I can probably figure it out really easy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for me, this past week, uh, I saw you in the, uh, with, in the uh, airport uh, your first yeah. day of your trip. So, yeah, he, and when I when I happened to see Captain Jeff, he was hiding from me. Yeah, I was. He I was saw him. Was, oh, keep, keep low profile. <laughs> Stay away from that guy. And he caught me at one of my finest moments. But let's step back a little bit. Let's go back to last Sunday. Of course, the sign behind me. For those folks that can't see it on the radio, I have a Patriots banner. I am still a very proud Patriots fan. The game was fantastic. I cannot fault uh, the, the Patriots for losing the game as much as I can say the Eagles played an unbelievably well-coached and very well-executed game. So it was a fair and square game. I uh, I have no regrets. Of course, I was crying a little bit when Tom didn't get his sixth ring, but uh, he was fantastic, and the defense just didn't execute. So can't uh, can't really say it was a, a bad day because uh, you know most of the folks that watched the game were very well entertained uh, by a very good game you know it's all you can ask for mm-hmm. so upset about the loss but hey listen it's next year team on 4960 do me a favor can you increase speed maybe 15 to 20 knots yeah we can do it okay yep yeah, we got the champions behind you yeah we saw that uh, we'll hustle American 9475 First first world championship that they won. Uh, yeah. the Super Bowl. Yeah. Hats off to them, except for they burnt down their city yeah. and flipped a lot of cars. Well, it's Philadelphia. Sense. It is so. Philadelphia. <clears throat> yeah. That's okay. You know, let them win one. So, anyways, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, magnanimous. 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 Yes. Very, very. Wait, and yeah. <laughs> no, but he's right. It was. It really was a very exciting game back and forth. And, um, Lots of great plays, and I think that's really what people want to see in a Super Bowl more than anything else. Um, you know, you want to, well, besides the good commercials too. But yeah, you know, a game of well this year. No, not not a whole bunch. I, the best one I think was um, Eli and uh, Odell Beckham Jr. doing their uh, dirty dancing. Yeah, that was kind of. Uh, <laughs> 
It that's a, that's a whole nother show. It, it is. It is. <laughs> Moving on. Yes. So yeah, uh, hats off to Philly. I mean, they they really did. They played a great game and uh, good for the NFL. I think. I mean, everybody's tired of seeing the Patriots uh, in the Super Bowl and winning the Super Bowl and everything about the Patriots. So. Uh, the fact that it was a great game uh, and the Patriots didn't win, I think, is is probably a good thing for the NFL as far as um, future ratings. So I have to take my hats off to them. Uh, oh, well. Moving on after that day. It's still a good time at the bar, by the way. You missed out, Jeff. Oh, yeah. The, uh, yeah. the Patriots. Well, everybody was having a blast. And then we drowned our woes. <laughs> good thing Julie was driving. Anyway, so uh, <clears throat> Monday, or no, Tuesday, day I saw it. Was it Tuesday or Wednesday I saw you? I think it was Wednesday I saw you. Tuesday, I got notification when I logged in that my vacation had been liquidated for training. More, and more. Yeah. Oh, terrible. Not a happy boy. <laughs> that's a party foul. And what I came come to find out when I spoke to them, um, they liquidated because my vacation conflicted with my training by one day. May 5th, and that was really irritating to me because I had two things planned with that vacation. One was, uh, there goes Jeff. I must be born. Um, <laughs> Continue, yeah, it's the, fine. The coffee went through him real quick. So anyways, uh, yeah, the uh, one-day conflict. So they took my entire vacation, which I had a scuba diving trip and motorcycle weekend that I had scheduled to go to both of them before I went to training which is going to be May 5th is when I'm going to go to training. Um, I fought with the company and the union and I'm really in a, in a, because of the way the contract is written. Uh, and I have to be converted by May 15th and it's an eight day training period, the way it was explained to me. So even though I was very mad when I saw Jeff, uh, I've come to grips with it, with it, that it's just going to have to be that way because, well, the company's back is the wall to the wall and partly my choice because, in the end, uh, it was my choice to defer my training all the way until all the people junior to me uh, are trained, which in actuality is going to work out because I've looked at the projected, and I'm going to be on the 75th percent, percent percentile instead of the 89th percentile where I would have been if I went to training at the front of the whole wave. So i uh, upset about it, but uh, over it. So it, it's going to be what it is. And by mid-May, I'll be uh, wearing the fourth stripe like Captain Jeff is right now in the video. Woohoo! Yay. So, Sorry about your vacation, though. That's really... It, yeah, it, it knocked out two things on me, and I'm not happy about that. But hey, listen, hopefully I live long enough to go again. Yes. Yeah, sorry to long hear about the vacation, but... Uh, yeah, you'll get over it, I guess. Once and then I did something that Jeff normally does. I flew a white slip this week. Oh, nice! On top, on top of my uh, my regular trip, which I got rerouted in a good way this week for change, ended up with a domicile layover, deadhead to fly one leg back on my last day of the trip. Got done. I was originally scheduled to be done around nine thirty, ten o'clock on Thursday in the evening. Ended up uh, done about eight. 15, I think it was, actually driving in my automobile, driving out of the employee parking lot five minutes before a scheduled arrival time. Wow, very because nice. It was, it was great. So that, that reroute worked, and then I picked up a day line, went to Miami yesterday um, on a white slip. So something I never do, but uh, I figured Jeff would, would uh, <laughs> be surprised to hear that I actually did that. 
<laughs> I am. Well, good for you. Good for you. All right. So that's my week. All right. Any uh, any meetups or anything for you all this week? Mm, nope. Nope. I'm well, where I'm going. Okay. Well, I'm going to make up for How it about? then. Excellent. So. Several um, chance encounter. Well, this one, the first one was a chance encounter. Actually, the second one, too. Um, I was walking through the uh, airport. I don't know if it was the same day that I saw you, Dana, or not, or maybe it was the following day. But I was walking through the airport, and I just happened to look up, and I'm looking at this person walking in the opposite direction. I'm thinking, wow, that person looks really familiar to me. And then it took me a second to kind of place who this was, and it was Owen. Owen from uh, the PTUK and uh, the APG community. Uh, from, oh, really? Yeah. What was he doing? Uh, he was on a vacation, a personal um, trip to, uh, was coming through, well, I think he started He's going to- at Pensacola. Um, he, okay, yeah. yeah, he spent some time there um, years and years ago and met some people and established a, a great friendship and uh, he was going there to uh, visit with them, and he started out at Heathrow, went to Kennedy, and I think it was on uh, um, Acme Red on that segment of the trip, and then Kennedy to Atlanta on Acme, and then he was going to continue on Acme uh, from Atlanta to Pensacola, Florida. And he had a few, we both only had a few minutes. In fact, each of our flights uh, was leaving at the same time, about uh, 1025. So we uh, quickly went over to a little place, grabbed a cup of coffee and visited for about 10, 15 minutes. And then uh, we were on our way. So it was nice that I was able to see Owen and uh, on his way transiting through the ATL. So I hope that, uh, let's see, right now, I think he is in Auburn, Alabama. One of the people that he knows from Pensacola now lives in Auburn, Alabama. And unfortunately, um, we weren't able to do anything more than just a chance encounter and share a cup of coffee. Well, actually, he had his own coffee. Yeah, but that's kind of fun when that happens anyway. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And uh, let's see. Then when I was in Nashville... um, Last week, sometime. I, this is all running together. I forget which day it was. Uh, but uh, I was in the van going from the airport to the hotel and I was looking through my email and trying to catch up. And I noticed that somebody had left a message on my Google Voice number. And so I listened to it and it was uh, somebody named Mike. And he said, Hey, I noticed that you're going to be in Nashville and I'm driving from. Dayton, Ohio to Birmingham, and I'm going to be in Nashville about 4.30 this afternoon, and if you want to get together, uh, it'll be great. And I said, well, yeah, that's going to be perfect, because uh, that would be about the time I'd head out anyway, maybe a little bit early, but uh, to grab a bite to eat. So I ended up meeting up with Mike, and I recorded a little bit here, so let's take a listen. Well, hello, everyone. I'm in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And I've been here for a couple of hours and just walking out of the uh, Martin's Barbecue Joint and had some great barbecue here in Nashville. And of course, uh, got, I, I got to learn about Mike and uh, his background and uh, the fact that he's just gone to, uh, what, ground school, I guess you'd call it, uh, for a sure. regional. Yeah, I just, uh, just got done with an oral at a, uh, at a wholly owned regional carrier, uh, military helicopter pilot. Um, Enjoyed dinner here tonight with the uh, with the captain, and uh, looking forward to uh, some more meetups potentially in the future. 
Absolutely. And this guy, man, he's got a, quite a background. Uh, he's done uh, medical stuff, and he was a cop, and uh, now uh, in the um, Army, uh, in the uh, Guard unit uh, there in Birmingham, flying Chinook uh, helicopters, and uh, just uh, got hired by a regional, and he'll be starting uh, sim training sometime soon, I guess, right? Yeah, so now he's uh, entering into the world of uh, passenger airlines. So uh, that's exciting. really exciting to, uh, to hear about his story and his journey. And it looks like he's got the whole world at his, at his uh, what would you say, at his feet <laughs> or whatever. His world is his oyster. The world is his oyster or whatever. So uh, anyway, we did have oysters. We had, uh, let's see, pulled pork barbecue and uh, brisket. Food. Great food, and uh, of course, as always, the best part is the conversation. So, definitely. Anyway, so you want to say anything else before we sign off? I think that's it. I appreciate the uh, the time, and it was uh, it was good getting to meet you. Nice meeting meeting you as well. And you know what? It's cold out here. It is cold. <laughs> it's very cold. <laughs> okay, that's enough. Bye. It was windy too. That didn't help things. But uh, anyway, so it was great uh, meeting Mike. As I said, very last minute kind of thing, and. Um, as he mentioned, he was going to, uh, well, he just ended up, uh, the very first part of his training with the regional, uh, carrier and heading back to Birmingham. And we expect to hear more from Mike in the future. Yes. And definitely let us know how things are going. We're always interested in that. And so is the community. So, yeah, it looks like, uh, Nick's Mac crashed or something. I think it's actually, uh, he just wants to watch the rugby game yes, that's going on in yes. the background, but He'll be back with us shortly. I think he's just screaming at the TV, and he just didn't want us to hear. <laughs> Could be, too. Uh, let's see. Oh, and then um, just returned, as I mentioned, uh, from this three-day trip. And I was in Kansas City yesterday, yesterday uh, afternoon and evening. And, you know, we tried to do this last month, a Kansas City barbecue meetup, but uh, didn't happen. But this time it did. Uh, Tom Seagraves picked me up. I'm not going to say anything else because maybe I say something about it in this recording. So let's listen to a little bit of recording from last night's meetup in Kansas City. We are now at Arthur Bryant's barbecue joint. Is that what they call it? A joint? No? All right. No, you know what? I'm thinking of uh, my recent uh, Nashville visit, the place that I met up with another guy was called the Marvin's Barbecue Joint or something like that. Anyway, we're at Arthur Bryant's, a Kansas City institution, and uh, we're having a, another APG meetup. And uh, let's see, Tom, we're going to save you for last because you're the one that kind of uh, came up with this whole idea and kind of coordinated it. And, uh, we'll start off with Paul Bellacera. Uh, here you go, Paul. Uh, say something to the uh, community. Yeah, hi APG community, uh, uh, Paul Balacera here with the uh, crew at uh, Arthur Bryant's. Uh, I am uh, in from Kansas City, I live in Leewood. Uh, I'm not a native Kansas Cityan, however, I'm from Melbourne, Australia originally. Uh, love the show, obviously, uh, I'm I made the trip out here with uh, two small children at home and a wife looking at me saying, what are you doing, you're leaving me on Friday night? But uh, no, it's been great hanging out with the crew here at uh, Arthur Bryant's, had some good food, a couple of good beers. Um, yeah, not much else to say. Uh, aviation nut from way back. Um, the smell of burning kerosene uh, gets me going every time. So uh, I like to live vicariously through the APG crew. Um, looking forward to meeting the rest of you guys someday as well. Uh, thanks a lot, Captain Jeff, for coming out. All my pleasure. 
here we have uh, the next contestant. Hey, this is Matt Cole uh, from Liberty area up in Kansas City, North Kansas City area. Appreciate uh, all that the APG crew does. And uh, as Paul said, living vicariously through everybody out there uh, with the APG crew. So thanks for what you do. Thanks, Captain Jeff, for putting all this together and uh, really enjoy the show every week. Yeah, we enjoy doing it. And then last but certainly not least, Tom. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming to town, Captain Jeff, and being willing to get together. It's definitely great to finally get you at Arthur Bryant's. I've been wanting to get you here for a long time. This is where I took Captain Nick when he was in town a couple years ago. Um, he he uh, rightly called it an artery clogger. It is. You can't eat here every day. You know, it'll, it'll get you. So... But uh, good food, good good conversation. Appreciate the fact that you share your life with us behind the cockpit door and everybody else on the team. Um, so I wanted I want to make sure that Dana knows that I'm sending him a bottle of sauce. So <laughs> okay, where is it? <laughs> ah, I think I was gonna pick that up tomorrow. Got some other stuff for you here. Got your uh, you know your your. Uh, challenge coin and uh got a uh, yeti uh thing i'm not going to unwrap this but this is the uh, bottle see it says uh oh wow arthur bryant wow. wow okay i'm excited <laughs> so let me uh let me finish up with this uh uh audio from uh, arthur bryant's <laughs> dana because you're such a aficionado with ribs i want you to try the arthur bryant sauce and tell me what you think if you don't like it I can handle the truth. Not everybody does, but I want to see what you think. So enjoy that. And uh, we still uh, I w would like to get Dr. Steph here because uh, I really want to argue barbecue with her. She talks about some kind of North Carolina barbecue, which, I, you know, I used to live out in that neck of the woods. She, you can call it barbecue, but it's not barbecue. It's some kind of pork stuff with this clear sauce. Vinegar based. Yeah, it's, you know. This is the real deal. So, anyway, um, thanks for coming. Uh, glad to have you here in Kansas City, and hope to see Dana out here sometime as well. And and uh, maybe we'll have we'll be able to do this again down the road. I know he'd love it. And let's see, the beer that we're having here is a, uh, a local Kansas City Boulevard, and uh, they were talking about how uh, compared to North Carolina beers, I mean they they pretty much suck. Um, so, Doctor Steph, I don't know sounds like fighting words to me they're dissing your north carolina barbecue they're dissing your beer actually i'm making that part up they didn't diss your beer but just wanted to get you riled up all right yeah we had a great time here and uh hope to be out here again and uh meet up with you folks again all right all right there you go uh how to well we can have we can have disagreement about the barbecue but the beer clearly wins here i'm sorry yeah i, I have to agree uh, it's hard to beat North Carolina. <laughs> but I'm happy to try it. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. Boulevard makes some good stuff, you know. They they do. I've I've had some of sampled some of their uh, different types of beers, mm -hmm. so I would agree with that. Yeah. So uh, we had a great time, and uh, I believe Matt is uh, in the chat room with us as we're recording this live. Matt Cole. That was the uh, the second person that uh, was uh, um, one of the guests at the uh, meetup last night. It was a pleasure meeting you, Matt, and uh, also Paul. I'm sure that you're listening as well, and uh, hope everything is uh, going well with you and your family. And of course, Tom, thanks again for driving all the way from uh, Columbia to uh, uh, come and pick me up from the hotel and take me over there to Arthur Bryant's. It was a blast.
yeah, I can't, I honestly can't wait to get out there. It just hasn't uh, happened. Um, actually, there was a trip in open time next week that I was looking at to try to get to Kansas City, but it just didn't uh, didn't work out in the schedule. But I'll get there, I promise, sometime. I'll have to look for a conference, in quotes. Yeah, conference. one of those conferences, like City. Park City. It's coming up. <laughs> and Tom, thank you for that, uh, for the barbecue. Oh, you don't sauce. have it yet. Look. So don't thank well, him yet. I, uh, <laughs> well, I see it's in your hand yeah. that is very dangerous because I know you don't know how to cook with it. So, okay. Well, maybe I should do do a test round of ribs tomorrow afternoon. You can just bring it over. We can use it. Uh, no, no, excuse me. Uh, I'm in England. <laughs> uh-huh. What's your I'm, point? I'm, I'm, I'll send <laughs> you next no, no test ribs unless I'm there, okay? No, no, no. Actually, I, I, could, I could probably make it. Well, no, because I can bring uh, those I'll to you too. England. Right? This FedEx or dry ice or UPS. Or I could just show up at the uh, airport. I don't think it would taste quite the same. No. Probably not. Well, we'll we'll test it out for you this time, Nick, and we'll let you know if it's any good or not. We're just saving you the trouble of having to, if if it's no good, you, you, yeah. That that sounds pretty weak. <laughs> <laughs> but then I remembered that you've actually already taste tested the stuff from Arthur Bryanson. That's ah uh, yeah, but there were I only just tried one one sauce. There are lots of sauces. Uh, okay. Yeah, they had three there. We'll, we'll try this. We'll try this one out for you, and um, we'll let you know. This one's the original, oh. and um, they had uh, two that were uh, spicy. One, the one that was my favorite was the sweet and spicy sauce. So, Ooh, really like that, that one. Okay. Yep. Um, hey, mailbag, stale snail mail. Remember, you know, like the uh, the post service, postal service. I got. I, oh, I yeah. visited the APG PO box um, a few days ago, and got a couple items and. Let's see. The first is from somebody named Fabian. He sent me a postcard. Here, let me show it to you if you're watching the video. And uh, these are some photos that he took uh, while we were in the UK together, London. Uh, That's you not in front of Queen Elizabeth Tower and Big Ben. And that is you not in front of the Houses of Parliament by the looks of it. Exactly. That's not us doing any of that. <laughs> so it says, Dear Jeff, it was a pleasure meeting you. And I really enjoyed walking through London with you. Thank you for doing the great podcast, creating such a wonderful community. I hope you had a good journey home and best wishes from Germany. And so, very nice. Thank you. Nice, nice uh, little thing to get in the mail. And also, this is from uh, Matt Donnermeyer. And he sent this nice little picture like a postcard that's uh, in this plastic and it's a uh, it's an acme l1011 uh very nice photo and a thank you note it says apg crew this is not just for me it's for all of us just wanted to say thanks for 300 episodes and i thought why not use a technology as old as the mad dog to do so Excellent. <laughs> That's rude. Excellent. Please find enclosed postcard of a Acme L1011 in classic widget livery. I hear Acme. Oh, oh, it's a Delta. Wait, let me look at that again. Oh, it's a Delta Airlines L1011. He said uh, it's a postcard of a Delta L1011 in classic widget livery. I hear Acme used to have something just like it. You're right. We did. Best wishes for 300 more. Matt Donnermeyer. So 
Thank you, Matt, for the note and the postcard. And thank you for using that old technology. <laughs> and that is it. I think we're all caught up, unless I've forgotten something. Anything else we want to talk about before we move on to the coffee fund? Not me. All right. On with the show. Let's do it. Keep on rolling. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. All right. While the Java Jive singers sing in the background, Let's talk about the Coffee Fund, which is your way to support the show financially, only if you have the resources to do so. And since the last episode, using the classic fund, or the classic Coffee Fund method, basically PayPal, we have a recurring payment from Jeff and Anissa Muller out in Northern California. Hope you all are doing well. And look forward to heading out there again sometime in the future and... and uh, talking with you again uh, the other way that you can support the show which is uh, turns out to be more and more popular uh, is patreon you can become a patron of the show by going over to patreon.com slash airline pilot guy again all this is information is on our website and since the last episode we have a few new producers uh, one anton delsink Another, Stephen Nicholson. I believe that's um, Louisiana Steve. Um, Brett Fry came in as a producer as well. And then Evan Shu down in Australia. Um, he actually edited his pledge and he doubled it from $1 to $2 per episode. So thank you very much, Evan, for that. And it was a nice, it was nice meeting you at Oshkosh this past year. So look forward to seeing you again. And again, if you want to support our show, get those Coffee Fund uh, crew logs, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. There you can find out about how to join the show. Not the show, the Coffee Fund cadre. I love coffee, I love tea, I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Stand by for news. Just a quick aside, um, the website has been having issues for the last week or two, and Arash and I are mo mostly Arash because he's the smart one when it comes to web servers and that kind of thing. He is 
trying to figure out exactly what's going on with it. But uh, I know that some of you have contacted us and said, hey, what's going on with the website? It's been down for like three days. So we're trying to figure it out. And I think that there's some kind of an attack going on. I don't know if it's like a a bot attack or somebody specifically targeting our website. But uh, anyway, um, I do apologize for that. And hopefully we'll we'll get it worked out so that uh, it'll start running smoothly again. All right. Let's start with an incident that occurred recently. It was an Airbus 320 near Tampa on the 3rd of February. Frontier Airlines um, flight, uh, let's see, 19, no, 1883 from Orlando to Phoenix was climbing through flight level 300 out of Orlando when the crew reported smoke in the cabin and decided to divert to Tampa, Florida. The crew advised that there was smoke in the cabin believed to originate from a lithium-ion battery. And it says the cabin was on oxygen. And then I put in parentheses, maybe the cabin crew. Uh, The flight deck was not on oxygen. Later into the approach, the crew advised that there had been an actual fire. The fire was now out. Actually, I have some audio from this if you want to listen to it. I edited it so that didn't uh, stretch too long, but let's take a little listen here. Our foreign company would like to receive entering the Juliet response, entering Lima, Juliet, Whiskey, to our standby locations. And R4, it's uh, being told it's a lithium-ion fire. Copy that. All right, R2, we have the latest information now. The uh, aircraft is currently 35 miles northwest of Tampa. We ran in runway one left in about six to seven minutes, and we're showing smoking uh, in the cabin. They uh, believe they believe it's a lithium-ion uh, call situation. 132 souls on board, six hours of fuel remaining, and uh, they said that the the uh, cabin is on oxygen at this time, and the cockpit is not on oxygen at this time. I was just informed that the fire is out on the uh, aircraft, but they're still on oxygen. R2, thank you. R2, your aircraft is uh, five miles away. Tower for flight 1813, emergency aircraft on five miles, final for one left. Center 1813, Tampa, Tower, good evening, wind 080 at 9 runway one left, clear land. All right. I'm going to go ahead and uh, stop right there. Uh, It goes on, but uh, we kind of get the gist there. Uh, Again, um, going from Orlando to Phoenix, shortly after they took off, uh, there there was a a, a battery fire reported. Now, the thing about the... uh, the cabin was on oxygen. Uh, the tower controller was telling the uh, air rescue firefighting people. Um, I'm thinking that something must have been lost in the translation there. Perhaps maybe the flight attendants were on portable oxygen. But uh, I think that, uh, well, actually some of the comments here from this is from the Aviation Herald. A um, couple of people, three people, in fact, uh, mentioned in the comments that they were actually on this flight. Uh, the first one, Patrick said, I was on this flight about 15 rows back. Cabin oxygen masks did not drop down. The event was quick with a smoke cloud toward the front passenger rows and the lingering smell. Any fire must have been small and short-lived. When we landed in Tampa, the runway was lined with every emergency vehicle that they had. Everyone deplaned at about, or after about 25 minutes. 
At that point, I realized that it was going to be a long night. Um, he said, better that than a an abruptly short night. Uh, Kim, also a commenter, said she was on the flight and her friend was right in front of the person whose cell phone caught fire. The lady had an external battery hooked up to an iPhone and it was in her coat wrapped around her waist. It burned her coat, her back a bit, and she jumped up and knocked it into uh, to the ground. Then my friend tried to pick it up to take it to put in the metal sink in the lavatory, but another passenger knocked her and away and it did, well, let's see, passenger knocked her and away and did it instead burning his hand. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what they are saying there. No attendants were in the front of the plane. They were calling for an attendant to come up and went into the bathroom to do something. They ended up dumping ice and putting the phone in the ice tray. Smoke was bad and it smelled awful for a little bit and then pretty much went away. We landed, had no need of stopping on the runway to be checked out and went to the gate. It was pretty scary for a few minutes with all the smoke and fumes and made you realize how fast something can happen on a plane and how little control you have of things. And then finally, Jim said, I was on this flight too. There are several inaccuracies in this article. The incident aircraft, well, that's a... I guess a, a clarification on what tail number uh, this was. And um, he said also the oxygen masks did not drop in the cabin. The common information was that it was a cell phone, not a laptop. So there we go. Uh, another lithium ion fire. And it, I guess it was the, the external kind of a battery device to recharge the, uh, the phone battery that actually caught on fire, got overheated and went into thermal runaway. So sounds like they had a good time there on that airplane. Okay, I don't know if you guys can talk about a little bit what what, what your procedures would be um, for your companies if you had something like a small cell phone or other external device that was lithium ion and we open up the window and throw it out the window. No, <laughs> but aren't there like containment devices that you can actually yep. put them into and that's to isolate yep. it so you don't have to. Funny enough, uh, just yesterday I was doing uh, technical training, and part of the technical training includes a uh, safety video for exactly this event, Steph. So I'm recently refreshed, and uh, our procedures are that uh, um, you would douse the um, offending item uh, probably in place initially um, with copious amounts of water, uh, because cooling it is the most important thing. Um, when able, uh, you then uh, move it to a, a watertight container and continue to douse it with the uh, liquid. You don't use ice, although um, I think they probably just said they emptied the ice out of an ice bucket or something and perhaps used the, the bucket as the waterproof uh, container. Yeah, the, it says they put it on ice, but I, I don't think you're, it's ever recommended really to do that. It has to be no. in water. No, because the, uh, there's too many air gaps in a uh, right. pile of ice that allows it to continue to burn. Now, you've got to get uh, cooling water on it straight away. Uh, and um, if uh, you're on an aircraft with this one of these specialist bags, we have specialist bags on board uh, which are uh, fireproof. You put a liter of water inside that, put the item inside that bag, and we also have uh, fireproof gloves. Um, that the cabin crew know where they are and uh, they can withstand quite a high temperature. Uh, and um, then you continue to add water until the bag's more or less full and then you uh, seal it up, put it to one side and uh, you know get the aircraft on the ground as soon as possible. 
because if they smoke and fumes in the cockpit, then there are various procedures. They, they depend on the aircraft type. They don't include lowering oxygen masks for the very good reason that introducing pure oxygen into a cabin where there is a fire going on is probably one of the worst things you can do. Uh, and I was going to ask uh, you guys, um, do you not have smoke hoods on uh, your flights through the US, the domestic flights? Because we... Uh, our cabin crew, if there was a problem, would be donning smoke hoods. They wouldn't be carrying around portable oxygen for exactly the same reason as we wouldn't uh, be lowering the passenger oxygen. But Dana, can you address that? Yeah, we have uh, a uh, what's it containment PB, PBE. Oh, right? the PBE, yeah, the uh, portable yeah, breathing the P- equipment. Yeah, PBE, uh, which is I think a fifteen-minute air supply. It, it basically is a looks like a square box with a yellow clear plastic and it has its own in a rubber neck so it seals right around your neck and that allows you to approach a, a fire and, and be able to fight it uh, with pure oxygen being well i don't know if it's pure oxygen but there's an oxygen container within the apparatus to provide you with air so you can get close enough to the fire and, and with an extinguisher and, and put it out um, on our aircraft we have uh, one on the flight deck and one in the cabin so uh, the flight tents have access to it, and we have access to it in, in, in case of uh, the need to fight a fire. But we don't have any uh, lithium-ion capability uh, of, of securing on our aircraft that I know of, Jeff. Uh, well, they, I think we, they said that we're going to event, we're going to be like one of the last fleets yeah. to get these uh, devices. They're on all of our long-haul stuff right now. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in reality, I mean, for us, uh, we're, we're usually well within the within a few minutes of an, an airport in the U.S. because uh, we don't really don't fly it in very long haul. So um, we can usually get the gra- aircraft on the ground relatively quickly. So uh, that's... Interestingly, I just did a quick Google search and you can actually buy those things on Amazon. I don't think they were terribly expensive, but it comes with the actual uh, fire-safe gloves and the the pouch that you can put the device into with the water. So oh, nice. I don't know why they sell that on Amazon, but they do. So. Just kind of interesting. interesting. Are they expensive? Um, you know what? I got away from the page and I forgot to look at the price, but I'll pull it back up oh, here real quick. I was just curious. I think you could also. Uh, I, I thought in the Mad Dog, you just open the windows, let the rain come in. Exactly. Yes. Well, we, perfect. Yeah. That's why I said, you know, initially, if we have a, one of these battery fires, we just open up the window and throw it out because, you know, we're not pressurized. <laughs> oh, it's a good idea. You know, yeah, exactly. We, we fly unpressurized. Yeah. $524. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, okay. Right. Well, Yikes. I'm not going to buy one of those for me. Well, then. it wouldn't be for like personal use, but, you know. Yeah. Well, it could be. I think you can actually get, you know, those uh, PBEs, we call them, uh, personal breathing device or uh, apparatus or whatever. Personal That'd be PBD. Personal breathing equipment, maybe? E, I think. I don't know. Um, you can buy uh, – there are companies out there that make these things. I don't know if that's – it's probably not the same uh, as we carry on our on our jets. But, uh, you know, like if you are afraid that you're going to be in a situation in a hotel where you're going to want to have a – one of those things so you can get out uh, you can buy them but again they're not cheap and they're heavy too because you have to buy the little yeah i guess it comes with that little oxygen portable oxygen cylinder that is used it has a, it actually has two in cylinders for those uh, that are familiar with uh, uh using uh was a paintball guns mm-hmm. uh has that type of a cylinder in it that will inflate the the uh 
inflate the uh, apparatus, the PBE, mm-hmm. and then the, the that's an instantaneous when you pull it apart, and then it, it gets the ear going in there, and then the other one is uh, longer lasting, yeah, 15 minutes. I think minutes. it goes like for 15, and then it uh, residual, I think, will will stay in for a total of 30 Another minutes. Another five minutes, yeah, 20 minutes, something oh, like something that. Like that. Uh, and you can buy the really cheap ones uh, instead of the oxygen cylinders, they have CO2 cylinders. Just kidding. See, because CO2 would make it. <laughs> it was just a big pregnant pause there. What? <laughs> what? That's, you did? That's smart. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, let's see. There was other, someone else. Oh, I think um, just a few days before this incident in um, an Aeroflot Airbus A320. Now, it just happened to be um, an Airbus, but it doesn't really the type of airplane really it didn't make a difference. It's, it was the actual uh, individual personal electronic devices that were you know behaving badly. Uh, but this one again it was on an Aeroflot and it was going from Moscow to Volgograd, Russia, uh, with 150 passengers, seven crew, landed safely in Volgograd, and had taxied to the apron while waiting for the disembark disembarkation of passengers. A passenger's power bank. Suffered a thermal runaway. Hey, common, common theme here, and uh, caught on fire. Surrounding passengers poured bottles of vodka. No, wait a minute. Poured bottles of water over the device. <laughs> be a waste. Yeah, temporarily extinguishing the flames. The uh, thermal runaway runaway, however, continued. The device reignited. The cabin crew finally reached the device. Passengers and cabin crew poured additional water over the device. Fire extinguisher extinguishers were discharged, and the device was put into a secure container. And uh, there's a link to a YouTube video. One of the passengers was uh, videotaping the whole thing, and uh, it's kind of interesting. If you're if you want to take a look, that'll be in the show notes. So. A um, couple recent events of uh, these things catching up. And I am I have a feeling, unfortunately, that we're probably going to see more of this kind of thing in the future. Well, yeah, as people have more yeah. and more electronic devices and more and more external batteries to charge said electronic devices, I think you're probably right. And I actually had a thought about the, um, you know, fire, the electronics fire containment bag that Amazon is selling. Might not be, you know, if I had my own general aviation aircraft, might not be a bad I think, idea to carry one of those in the, the back just in case you have passengers with who bring questionable electronics on board but in your so, case couldn't you actually open up a window and throw it out you could <laughs> yeah. yeah you actually yeah. could probably the better <laughs> i don't know you throw it out in this flaming you know battery brick start a forest fire that <laughs> <Oops. would be> <laughs> terrible. <laughs> sorry yeah nothing to see here nothing to see yeah. <laughs> just, keep, just keep flying on it's fine yeah all right moving on incident at singapore air show flight display jet crashes at the show, a South Korean aircraft skidded on the runway and crashed into a grass verge. I don't know what that is. Catching fire during takeoff at Shanji. Is that right? Kanji or Shanji? A verge. A verge is the area just off the edge of a road or, oh. in this case, I guess, a taxiway. Okay. Kind of in the same category as Mankey and Grot? Yeah, I no, don't know. probably not. <laughs> They're not usually manky and grotty. They might be. <laughs> anyway, this is at. Uh, is They're it grassy? Is it Shanji? Is that the way you pronounce it? Changi. Changi. Well, Changi. Changi. Uh, anyway, I would have the Singapore airport on February sixth. Aircraft was part of a flight display uh, team at the Singapore Air Show. The aircraft belongs to the South Korean Air Force Aerobatic Demonstration Team, the Black Eagles, which is taking part in an aerial display at the air show. 
so there's a video of this as the thing is taking off. It's one of the uh, the last, probably one of the solo jets. I don't know, there were nine of them. I'm not sure exactly what number it was, but it was taking off. And then you see a, it looks like some kind of a brake fire or something, or maybe they had already uh, tried to start uh, aborting the takeoff. And then with the severe braking, uh, the thing caught on fire and it kind of skids off the runway and flips around a, a bit. But uh, looks like the pilot made it out safely. Um, so that was the good news. But if you want to take a look at the video, it's going to be in the show notes. What aircraft uh, are those? Does it say? Ah, uh, yeah. Look this up. It was. A, it's actually made by um, a South Korean company in in uh, cooperation or conjunction with uh, Lockheed Martin. And uh, I didn't recognize the designation of the jet, though. No, oh. uh, I can't actually see it. But uh, yeah, maybe I don't know. Somebody is. could uh, look up South Korean T-50? black fifty. Pardon. Uh, hold on. Let me make sure I'm reading the right thing here. Okay. It says it's a R-O-K-A-F, all in capital letters, T-50 jet. A T-50. All right. Okay. I'm none the wiser, but thank you. Anyway. No. Yeah. It's Sorry. it's nothing that I recognized either. No. I, I think it's it's one of their, I, I think they said in a different article I was reading, it's one of their um, advanced um, high performance trainers, uh, kind of like the T-38 in the Air Force, uh, supersonic gotcha. trainer for the uh, South Korean Air Force. Okay, uh, let's see. I want to make sure that I'm on the same page as you all are. Oh, number three, FAA investigating the video of a drone flying dangerously close to an airliner. I'm sure that many of you see, have seen this video. And honestly, when I first saw it, I thought, this is not real. This is fake. Somebody made this up. And... Uh, so, and you, you know the video I'm talking about, don't you? It was uh, outside of uh, McCarran oh, yes. Airport. Oh, yeah. I've taken a few mm-hmm. looks at that. So I'm thinking to myself when I'm reading this article, I'm thinking, I, I wish I'd know. I wish I knew somebody who knows a lot about uh, first person view FPV drone vehicles. Oh, yeah. If only we knew mm-hmm. someone like that. Hmm. Be handy. Yeah. And then I thought, wait a minute. We do know somebody like that. His name's Fred. So, Fred. Um, I was looking at the aviation news as I want to do, and I saw this video and many of the people listening have seen the same video and it is a drone video. Cue the drone sound now. There we go. You hear that? Right, loud and clear. <laughs> I'm putting it in post. Anyway, um, so when uh, several people sent this to us and said, can you believe this at like this near miss with a frontier Airbus? And I'm looking at this thing and I go, well, that's fake. That, that can't be real. It doesn't look, doesn't look real to me. But then I'm looking at uh, several different sources online, uh, you know, good expert aviation sources. And I'm thinking, these people are thinking that this is real and this was a real incident. And I guess there's some question about when it happened and all that. But um, so I thought, you know what? I know somebody, Fred Sampson, who is, uh, you know, like one of the top tier APG community members and an FPV first person viewer. Is that right? First person viewer. So what the FPV stands for? 
first person view and then we usually say pilot although i'm not quite sure that that term is a yeah you're a pilot you know you're looking at this thing and you're and i can see that yeah yeah you're operating some controls i guess yeah Mm -hmm. fpv pilot and uh you have a lot of experience with that and you do racing and that kind of stuff putting the uh goggles on and looking through the camera that's mounted on the on the drone and i'm thinking fred would know the answer to this is this real or not fred it's real as far as we can tell now it what? took a while yeah it absolutely is i mean i looked at it i had a couple friends look at it we got a, a high quality version of the video off of a, a sort of a gray sort of internet site where we found it um I know a lot of sites don't want to put this video up for, for a lot of very, very valid reasons. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as disturbing as it is, and I think it was, it's, I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be maybe shocking to a lot of people, but I think even for us in the, in the FPV community, it was, we immediately realized that this was going to be bad news. First of all, glad that nothing went wrong with, with that stunt because it was a stunt and it was deliberate. You know, we, we, when you watch the video, you know these these racing drones or these these smaller FPV drones, the, the batteries don't last very long. You know, two maybe three minutes. And so, uh, to do something like that, you sort of have to, to plan it out. You know, so taking off and then getting yourself in the path or landing path of a three three twenty, I think in this case, um, doing a stunt and then coming back, uh, you know, takes uh, it, it definitely needs to be deliberate. You definitely wasn't just flying around there and say, "Well, look." An airplane coming to land. Let me see if I can loop around the airplane. This was, this was something that he set out to do, and probably took a couple of tries. Yeah, it looked like it was clearly positioning the drone and facing the direction of the incoming traffic for the landing pattern that day. Yep. Wow. So I mean, everything is consistent. You know, the the airplane is consistent. It's a frontier. You know, we, we, you can read the if you look carefully enough, you can actually read the end number off the side of the airplane. Hmm. That's a real Frontier airline, and we, we even went as far as to check. You know, they have the uh, those are the airplanes with the uh, the animals on the on the vertical stabilizer. So you we actually go and check that it was the right one. Mm-hmm. But everything looks consistent. I mean, the the, the scenery, the distance from the airport, uh, and then the flying as well. You know, for him to get from his takeoff position to what we think is about a thousand feet, maybe a little higher, uh, he'd have to go full power. And you could see it in the camera. You know, something called we call Jello, which is when the the flight control computer is not really able to stabilize the quad. And when you edit a lot of FPV video, you get really familiar with, with that jello. And that, again, that looks, that looks really consistent. Now I, I know some people had a hard time for two reasons. The video is sped up, right? So the, the whole takeoff up all the way up to the airplane. Then when the airplane passes underneath the drone, the video is then slowed down. So it looks a little bit jerky, but that's just, that's just bad editing. Um, and then the other, the other question that I got a lot was, was, why doesn't the drone just get blown away? You know, you're flying within a couple hundred feet of a very pretty large aircraft. Some people online may argue as to whether a 320 is large or not. But we'll, <laughs> we'll yeah, but leave it, was that. Ab- it was above the flight path, so the, was, the at all turbulence is going to be below it, right? Correct. So he, was, he stayed above all at all times, and so again, this yeah, this, as far as as far as we can tell, it's real. So the person that filmed this and did this stunt. Uh, what was the point of this? Was it, I mean, was this something that uh, this person put out on YouTube or, I mean, how did, how did people, you know, become aware of this? So we, there's a lot of FPV pilots that, that shoot these videos, you know, whether it's adventure videos, like the, this would maybe qualify as one. They'll, they'll go to a location and fly. They'll, they'll do a race and fly. And yeah, they, they put it out on their, on their YouTube channels. 
this one was posted to Facebook briefly. And I think that, that whoever, but we know who posted it. it, it it's, it's known. I just don't want to name the person. Yeah. But, uh, I didn't not for no other reason. I just don't want to give somebody publicity that would do something like this. But, um, it was posted to Facebook and it was immediately taken down and then somebody else grabbed the video and then re-uploaded it to YouTube just to, so that the, <laughs> in their words, you know, the evidence would, would be preserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was enough to, for this thing to just really, really go viral. I think, I think a lot of people were, were, I think the community realized that there is a line and I think this one crossed the line. You know, we there's a lot of videos out there, people diving bridges and diving buildings or chasing cars usually chasing their friends in cars. You know, it's usually prearranged. Mm-hmm. Um, and there haven't really haven't been any issues, but I think this one, I think the whole community is, I don't, I don't, no one said, hey, hey, dude, this is cool. Everybody said, whoa, this is not, this is not okay. And so um, I, I'm hoping, I mean, obviously the FAA is investigating this. I don't know this. This is what I've read. Yeah. But uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully they'll, they'll investigate this. They'll take, they'll take the proper action. But I think even, even without that, I think, uh, I think, People in the in the RC community in general, I think, need to learn a lesson. So hopefully, this could be a little bit of a watershed moment for us, and people will realize that there is a uh, okay. So there are some consequences to this. Ramifications for the person that actually did this stunt. That's up to the, that's up to the FAA. I mean, they have to determine. I mean, in terms of uh, he, you know, he's flying within a few miles, or I think it's a mile and a half of of McCarran on the on the approach. By the way, it's when you look at it on the map from where he was, it's impossible to stand there. I mean, the, I've been to Vegas, you've been to Vegas. It's a constant stream of airplanes, especially in the afternoon, especially like after 1 PM when all the East coast flights are coming in. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely impossible to claim that you were just flying around and you didn't know you were around airplanes, right? But they'd, be, they'd be coming over your head every 45 seconds to a minute. So, so it, it, it looked pretty planned. And I think that's a factor, right? There's a, there's a big difference between, um, Somebody flying around and go, whoops, you know, sorry, we didn't know. But in this case, it, it, it really did look both from the location of the where the video was shot as well as from the flying that this was this was something that was that was planned. So no accidental encounter. <sighs> so to, to put yourself exactly at the right altitude yeah. in front in the flight path of a landing airplane. I just it, by the way, this is hard. Like uh, I sat there and think, oh, well, if I want to do this, what would it take? This is not this is not trivial. You know, you you may have what we saw was one take, but there might have been a whole bunch of other ones that didn't work before that. Mm-hmm. Lots of batteries. Close, a little too late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'm I'm imagining that the person who actually did this is probably thinking, well, that was fun and it was awesome, and I I'm glad I got to show you know strut my stuff. But now I'm thinking, hmm. In hindsight, maybe that was not a very good idea, and I really need to start thinking about heading to Mexico or Canada to uh, avoid prosecution. <laughs> I'm thinking the same thing. <laughs> I imagine that person's in Mexico right now. <laughs> um, I I don't know. I think um, I, I, you know, there's there's things you do that there's there's footage, there's drone footage that you get that you keep, and there's drone footage that you share, and I think. He's probably going to be regretting sharing that footage. Yeah. Um, I can see like somebody who's really into this going, I mean, this is amazing. Look what I was able to do. And you know, what an, what an amazing shot. And you look at it and you're thinking that is pretty amazing footage. And the way he was able to manipulate the 
drone to, you know, see the airplane coming at the drone and then mm-hmm. go below and then go, you know, the other direction uh, toward the airport. I'm thinking they're, they were pretty proud of that, I'm sure. Uh, but again, maybe not thinking the thing completely through and the ramifications for, you know, getting in trouble for this. But, uh, huh. Okay. So, well, I'm glad I, I, I got a chance to talk to somebody who knows something about this. And, uh, and, and as you said, everybody out there in the, in the community is saying, uh, not smart. This is not promoting, you know, the, the proper use of these devices. And you've probably set us back a few steps. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, our biggest hope right now is that there's no they, they don't over, <laughs> there's no overreaction to this. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's going to be, but um, I, I think the first thing is is that nothing went wrong with this, right? There could have right. been something that went, nothing went wrong, but I think now um, let, let's find out what this what this person's story is, and and let's see. Hopefully, they don't they don't bring the hammer down on this. It's you know the the drone drones in general and the and the sport are not very not at the height of popularity, just in general. Um, I, I, I think, I think don't think a lot of people are being exposed to the sort of the, the to the hobby, like in a, in a, in a broad way. I think people still think that you buy a drone at the mall and then you go fly it at the beach, at the park, over your neighbor's house. There's not a lot of that going on, mm-hmm. you know, if at all, but hopefully, um, hopefully we can have a good community conversation after this and, and, and figure out one, the way to, to prevent this. Uh, but I also don't think that I, I think folks will know now that that videos like this won't get them the views and they won't get them the reputation they want. They'll just get them in trouble. So, right, hopefully, it won't happen again. Yeah, amen. All right. Well, thanks, Fred, for taking the time to uh, do this recording with me, and uh, it was definitely an eye opener. And uh, oh, yeah, it's always fun, sir. It's always fun. A special uh, thank you again to Fred for participating in that little interview. Actually, that was the second uh, take. We tried to do that uh, the night before when I was in Boston and he was still in Germany. It was very late for him and his bandwidth there was horrible and uh, finally said, you know, this is not going to work at all. So can we try it again tomorrow? And he goes, yeah, uh, 21 hours from now, I'll be landing at San Francisco International. And he said, I'll let you know when I'm at home. And uh, so that's what we did. So late last night, um, Recorded that. Uh, that was excellent. Mm-hmm. Great to great to get Fred's uh, input on all of that. Yep. Because right. none of the rest of us have nearly as uh, informed of a perspective. So right. Do we have an Thanks. update on the uh, rugby uh, match? Yes. Yes. What's going on? England yes. just won twelve six with the boys. Oh, okay. Excellent. Yay! Yay all right, I can concentrate now. <laughs> okay. What were we saying? No, Nothing. We're joking. we're doing the show, an aviation show, <laughs> and talking about some news. Moving on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought Fred's input's uh, great. Um, the th- sort of things that he didn't mention, though, is they're very wide field of view, those uh, cameras, uh, and they distort uh, how close you are to things, a bit like it says on your car mirror, uh, objects may appear uh, or may be closer than they uh, appear. And that's exactly the situation here. This guy had actually had to be um, quite close to this aircraft to get it to almost fill the frame. Uh, so uh, from that point of view, he would have been very close to hitting it. Um, now, uh, yeah, he, he may have un- misunderstood the limitations of uh, flying his drone close to airplanes, but I don't think he did. 
I think he's uh, he's being negligent. Uh, and uh, much as I appreciate, um, you know, your comments about, well, perhaps he didn't realize or perhaps he was just being, uh, you know, didn't really think of the consequences. I think he'd be, uh, we'd all think that, well, no, I'm sorry, mate. <laughs> Flying close to an airliner with a drone has been so well publicized. I don't think there's any excuse. No, I don't think so either. And what's scary about that whole thing is is how many times did he really practice that? How how close did he get every other time? And who's to say that nobody else is not out there doing that right now? Mm-hmm. So I mean that uh, that bird of feather, that drone is is maybe you know, have metal parts and plastic parts, but if it hits an airplane, it's going to do some major damage. So it's it's pretty scary to think how many drones are out there and and other people whether they post or not and, and fred said you know maybe the lesson's been learned on um you know people posting these types of things well i don't care whether you post it or not just don't do it it doesn't once some uh, someone else sees that and goes oh geez what a great idea that's fantastic i'm gonna have a go at getting that shot uh and you know next thing you know you've got uh, dozens of copycats out there trying to replicate what they think is a cool shot so the last thing you should do is stick it out in the public uh, so yeah, for that very good reason. Yeah. You know, it strikes me as a type of thing that uh, like, it looks, it, it's a great looking video, but it's something that's only done with the full knowledge of everyone involved in the video. In this case, it's clearly not. So, you know, if you're going to do, uh, video for publicity or advertising, it, this seems like an interesting application, but you can't do it without the knowledge of both parties involved. So exactly of what's going on. All right. Well, um, hmm, I think I'm going to play this. I have very little patience for stupidity. So I guess um, Tim Hitchcock sent you um, this link, Captain Nick, uh, regarding the our favorite uh, United States flat earther uh, trying to fly his rocket. Yeah, he tweeted, and I thought, well, that's an interesting one. I'm just going to grab that and forward that to you because uh, we did discuss him earlier, and uh, <laughs> it sounds like he actually had a go at getting airborne. <laughs> yeah, his name is Mike Hughes, and uh, now he no, he associates himself with the Flat Earth uh, Society or whatever it's called. Uh, I have a feeling that he doesn't really truly believe that the Earth is flat. I think it's just a way for him to get some attention and also maybe some funding to uh, – Fly his steam-powered rocket. Yes, how the hell does that work? <laughs> well, apparently not very well. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, so let's see. A U.S. man who claims the Earth is flat has tried to leave it in a homemade rocket on Saturday, but failed to overcome the gravitational force of five, nine, seven, four, and then several zeros of kilograms <laughs> of, of the, however much the Earth weighs in kilograms. Uh, that sphere uh, directly beneath him. In fairness, uh, he knows how to build a rocket, and he built he built them for many years under the precepts of classical physics when he was a still a relatively conventional daredevil, which is to say, one who believed the Earth is round. But Saturday marked Hughes' third aborted launch since he declared himself a flat earther last year and announced a multi-part plan to fly to space by the end of 2018, so he could prove that the astronauts have been lying about the shape of the planet. Yeah. I, you know what? I have a feeling that this is going to be his last attempt. <laughs> he uh, blamed his last uh, faulty launch attempt on a bad O-ring, 
for his, again, did I mention it's a steam-powered rocket? <laughs> That's going to get him really high up into the Earth's atmosphere. Yeah. Certainly high enough so that he can photograph the entire Earth in its flat and or round yeah. configuration. It's just a big disc, right? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. Why does he just drive to the edge of it? That would be a lot easier. <laughs> it would be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's so logical, Nick. <laughs> it's too logical. <laughs> that, that makes too much sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Ah, anyway, so uh, if you want to read the entire article, which is actually very well written, uh, very funny, by uh, Avi Selk and Amy B. Wang, and that was from stuff.co.nz, uh, this article. So uh, I think you'll get a kick out of it. Um, I, I like the bit that the uh, journalist said uh, when he climbed into his rocket, closed the hatch, saying it was going to be amazing. And uh, you know, the journalist said, I hear words. I hear numbers. But the rocket just sat there, <laughs> pulled down towards the Earth's core. <laughs> uh, the launch ain't happening, Zero, finally admitted. And he climbed out and said, maybe I left a plug in there. <laughs> Maybe an O-ring melted. Who knew? I pulled the plunger five different times. <laughs> the plunger. Oh yeah. Sophisticated <laughs> rocket technology. Yeah. Yeah, I, think it's, I thought it, perhaps he was on the toilet. I don't know. Uh, it sounds like very green technology, though, don't you think? Uh, oh, going, yeah, he, he was yeah. going green? Yeah. yeah. We're going green. Steam is a green technology. Going green. Oh, it's a absolutely. renewable resource. Unless you're green, said, that's... Uh, I cool. considered beating well. on the rocket nozzle from the underside, but you can't get under there. It'll kill you. It'll <laughs> scold you to death. It'll blow the skin and muscles off your bones. Sounds violent. It <laughs> <That> does. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's definitely worth reading, so check it out. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Tim, for sending that to us. Um, let's see. I think Liz is the one that kind of brought our drew our attention to this. Um, there's a company called tap jets that uh, calls itself like the the uber of of uh aviation or uh but you know i thought we talked about this last year about how the faa said no you can't do this kind of ride sharing thing but apparently the way they're they're doing it is different enough I think there's been kind of a gray area where some of these companies have fallen into yeah um yeah well uh, apparently, uh, the end of last month, the uh, U.S. Department of Transportation's FAA uh, issued an emergency order of revocation against TAP Jets of Spring, Texas and Fargo, North Dakota, for allegedly conducting passenger carrying flights using unqualified pilots and operating unauthorized aircraft. And so it goes on to talk about this in this press release, uh, what they were accusing uh, this company of. And then, uh, you know. The company's saying, hang on, hang on, wait a minute. Uh, this is not true. When we were doing all these so-called violations of the uh, FAR Part 135, we were not operating as a Part 135 carrier. We were operating as a Part 91, which rules are completely different. And uh, now they're vigorously defending themselves, uh, themselves against allegations. And apparently everything was going okay until they got some kind of an anonymous complaint the FAA did from somebody. And so they started looking into it and they thought, no, uh, you know, we're going to pull your certificate. I, I have a feeling that maybe the FAA has been trying to discourage this kind of um, 
outfit and this kind of scheme. And maybe this was just uh, perhaps an excuse to shut them down, but looks like they're not going to take it um, lightly. Yeah, it's interesting that we've just had one of the safest years uh, of aviation, certainly the safest in recent history. Uh, and we, we've just about got our industry uh, on the right footing. And now someone wants to develop an entirely new and uh, unregulated way of flying passengers around um, by circumventing the rules that have kept us so safe for so many years. And uh, I just think it's a complete step backwards. I, I can't understand uh, how it's not being stamped on straight away. Well, yeah, you know, it, it depends on whose stuff you're reading. Um, if you read uh, the uh, Tapjet's, um, you know, defense on this whole thing, they said that we were just, you know, kind of running through some procedures and that kind of thing before we actually uh, went online with this thing. And actually now I think it looks like it's mostly what they're doing is just the the method or the means of matching up people with operators out there. I don't think they're actually operating the airplanes. I think they're kind of contracting with other third parties that are already established operators of Part 135 uh, jets to, to do this kind of thing. And they're kind of like the middleman trying to match up, you know, people with these companies. But again, I could be wrong. I don't know that much about this. Um, hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of that gray area. You know, can you be a broker like that mm -hmm. for Part 135 operations? I, To be honest, I don't know. I'd have to go I don't read through all those FARs. But, um, you know, certainly you can't be, uh, you know, they, they were trying to say that the flights that were in question, they were just testing how their operations would work and they weren't, you know, getting any revenue from from the friends and family that were helping them out with that. But yeah, I, it's a gray area for sure. And mm -hmm. it sounds like the FAA does not agree with what they were saying they were doing. Yeah. So, well, we'll see. I'm sure we'll we'll hear more about how uh, how this case um, progresses. But I was kind of expecting when I went to the TapJet's website that uh, they were going to have some kind of a big thing on there saying, you know, the FAA has shut us down. We're not operating. But apparently they're they're still doing whatever they're doing. Um, I'm not sure how, but there was nothing on their website that said anything different. So I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Um, this uh, just quickly before we move on to our feedback. Um, IATA um, is developing a turbulence database. A new platform will offer airlines real-time turbulence reports. They've announced, uh, it's, uh, IATA has announced it is developing a turbulence information sharing platform, which it aims to launch in 2019. Working in collaboration with airlines and industry stakeholders, IATA will develop a global database of real-time aircraft-sensed turbulence reports. This data will enable pilots, flight dispatchers, and meteorologists to ultimately limit injuries and reduce fuel burn. And, uh, Anyway, so I was looking at this thinking, huh, Dana, I have a little snapshot in the um, in the uh, little item here. I took a picture of my electronic flight bag, or my EFB on my Surface 3 tablet, and uh, we at Acme use a, uh, a, a an app that is doing exactly what IATA is developing. And now I don't know if it's – I don't think it's yet – uh, applicable to the entire worldwide database of turbulence, but uh, we are already using it and have been now for uh, quite a while called the Flight Weather Viewer app. And it, uh, it's like the best thing since sliced bread. It uh, gives you real-time 
it updates every five minutes, I believe. Uh, the um, uh, turbulence, uh, you can enter your flight level and you see a vertical profile and you can see a horizontal profile. It puts, um, you know, turbulence reports and aromets and convective segments on there. And uh, it's it's really, really nice. And I guess the modern uh, or the newer airplanes out there, the uh, the new 737s and the uh, Airbuses and such have um, accelerometers that are installed on the airplanes and are constantly recording uh, information, data regarding the uh, turbulence and automatically sending it down or downlinking that information into a huge database. So it's really it's not it's not a subjective thing. You know, you ask a pilot if you're in light chop or moderate turbulence and you're going to get, you know, it's the same it's the same turbulence, but one pilot may think it's just light and another might think it's bordering on severe. And this kind of uh, makes it more of an objective um, stream of data for us to make decisions regarding, you know, whether we want to alter our flight path, alter our altitude or, you know, get the passengers seated and that kind of thing. So I can't wait. I absolutely can't wait for this to happen. I don't want it in our aircraft, but it if it stops everyone bleating and asking for ride reports all the time, then that's going to be brilliant. Honestly, since I've been using it, I hardly ever anymore ask for ride reports because I, I have the information right there in my tablet. And uh, it, it's worked well Excellent. for me. I don't know, Dana, have you had a good experience with this? You know, I, I agree with you, Jeff. I think it's a, a fantastic app. It's uh, it it's the right idea. I think uh, the only problem is, is right now it's only being reported by 737s. It's not even the Airbus. Oh. Um, and it, it needs to expand a little bit to get a little bit more accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm finding that some of the information is not as accurate as we would like. And thus, sometimes the reports that we hear over the radio uh, tend to be a little more concise because even though we have a, a computer picture of it, I think the controller has a much better picture f- of what their airspace is looking like based on uh, current conditions being reported by pilots. So um, I agree that it's it's an excellent tool that you can use, but sometimes I don't think it is as accurate as I would like it to be. Only because the information, it, the information going in is only is only as good as the information going in. So whatever whatever the the data that's getting transmitted to it, uh, it it's kind of limited. And, and quite frankly, the altitudes that we fly at, uh, very, very f- infrequently, uh, you fly, you know, find 737s flying at. They tend to fly at a higher altitude. So um, I like it. I think it's a great idea. I think the data has to improve that's going into it. Yeah, I think it will. I, I agree. I think it will. I think it's going forward. It's it's only going to get better. Um, and the international, you know, piece of it, uh, you know, the, they're I don't I obviously don't fly international, but I think going forward, Nick, it's uh, the as communication over the pond to, over the ponds improves via satellite. I think that this app will improve uh, the international view uh, when the aircraft are outside of the uh, uh, ground based. Uh, data collection well yeah i must admit most people's ride reports nowadays get blotted out by people transmitting i know bits of symptoms symptoms sketches and (laughs) making silly noises and talking about what what hotel they're going to and what restaurant they're going to that night so yeah yeah, it'll be nice not to have to listen to that stuff well and and you know 
like the other night coming into Atlanta, um, descending, you know, ATC gave us a little bit of a heads up, but we were getting uh, you know, continuous moderate uh, turbulence in the descent. And it wasn't until in, in you know, in the descent, you get a kind of a picture, but at that point in your flight, you, you, I don't know about you, Jeff, but I don't have the flight weather viewer at, you know, when I'm coming into Atlanta, 12,000 feet. Well, lo and behold, once you went down to like 11,500 feet, it smoothed out and smooth as glass. So it went from, you know, borderline moderate turbulence to smooth as glass. And the only reason we were able to get that is the aircraft in front of us gave us that information. And that's how we knew it. Uh, you know, the other the other limiting factor, I think, on, on this technology is that we cannot plug in. We have a portable battery, but until we see the new uh, iPad product, the Surface product, the battery life is is destroyed by the apps that are running right now. So like this app, uh, the Turbulence app, uh, kills my battery, oh. especially for a long time. You don't day. have a way to hmm? charge or power your... Surface Pro in flight? No, we, we have the internal battery on the Surface, oh, and we have an external battery that we can plug yeah. into it. Yeah, that's what I usually do. Okay. I have the external battery connected. so, uh, But I don't always constantly have that, you know, flight weather viewer app uh, in, you know, running or active. Um, most of the time, the tablet is sleeping, not using a lot of battery. Anyway, um, very good. I guess no. there's one thing else in the uh, in the news of the week that I don't I don't see in there. I don't know if you want to talk about it, but Elon Musk's uh, rocket. Oh yeah, the big uh, big uh, Falcon Heavy, uh, Falcon Heavy, launch, uh, just a few days back, and that was pretty spectacular. Um, yeah, and they launched a uh, uh, an electric car into space. Electric car with a with a dummy astronaut. And some of the, the photos and videos, if you haven't uh, haven't looked at it, you know, do an internet search on Elon Musk and his uh, his Falcon rocket, Falcon Heavy rocket, and there's some pretty astoundingly beautiful. Uh, they're almost saying it's almost like art. Um, you get a picture of this uh, car at about a I don't know, probably about a thirty or forty degree angle um, with the astronaut. The, the mannequin in the foreground and then in the background is a beautiful view of the earth behind. So it's almost it. Well, that's what they <laughs> claim it is, Dana, but I think it's green screen because obviously we all know the earth is, the earth flat. is flat. It is flat. It's yeah. going to be flat. Absolutely. I, I like the uh, headline that uh, showed a picture of that uh, car in front of the world. And it said, uh, Elon Musk commits perfect murder. Yes. I saw that one too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, who? What? What exactly? Or who is that uh, in behind the wheel of that car? <laughs> we'll never know. Yeah. That's no. the that's the point. And I have to I have to agree with Neville. Uh, Elon Musk is great after a uh, a shave. <laughs> oh, very good. All right. Uh, now it's time for the best part of the show. Of course, we all know mm -hmm. that's your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Okay, I neglected to put this in my iPad, and so I'm going to have to do the uh, echo button, and we all know what that means. I'll forget to turn it back to non-echo status, most likely, but uh, Steph's really good at reminding me. Um, so I'm going to go over here to some feedback that we got from Colonel Jeff regarding something that we talked about on a recent show. So 
Take it away, Colonel Jeff. Hello, APG. It's Colonel Jeff with greetings for Captain, Captain, soon to be Captain, and Doctor. Captain. And a Miami guy if he ever shows up again. I'd like to give a little bit of overdue feedback on the Pegasus incident. Uh, That's the one that went off the side of the runway down the hill. They had, uh, were coming in on a wet runway, which 737s don't like, especially when they're not grooved and not crowned. Um, And unlike any other airplane I've ever flown, the 737 can land with the auto throttles on. They do not turn off with weight on wheels. Uh, They go to an arm mode, which means they're not going to advance once you try to, they're not going to try to maintain your speed once you're on a rollout. Unless you hit the toga button, which the FO apparently did. Uh, Captain took the airplane, but he's only got one thrust reverser, and he only holds on to that left thrust reverser, which he engages. So the left engine is now in full reverse thrust, and the right engine is going to toga power because he's not holding on to it. I'm sure the airplane spun rather abruptly with the differential thrust like that. I mean, it's interesting, I'm sure, uh, not so much in the Mad Dog, but on the A330, uh, Nick would have seen this. If you only have one thrust reverser, it's not. It's a, it's more difficult keeping the airplane straight with one, and you're you're modulating the thrust reverser using the nose wheel steering to keep the airplane on the on the runway uh, better. It's an. I've actually done this. Uh, fortunately, I did it when I had two thrust reversers. Jeff, you need to cue the go around music here because that's coming up. My technique is anytime the weather's bad or the spacing doesn't look quite right. On approach, I have the go-around procedures going through my head. And yes, you can always go around. Um, so one time, I don't remember where it was, I actually tapped the toga buttons once. Um, didn't even realize I had done it. Just I guess I did it in a flare. Touchdown, I bring both throttles up to uh, reverse. And as, we're, as I'm closing the thrust reversers at about 60 knots, the throttles are fighting me. And I realize they're trying to advance. Um, so all I had to do is on the throttles, we have, um, just disconnect buttons on the sides of the throttle, just click them off and that turns them off. So I didn't have to fight with it anymore. It was a learning experience. I'm glad, uh, I recognize it as I had still had firm control with the throttles with both, uh, throttles and, uh, thrust reversers. So yes, that's probably what happened. Um, and I'm sure it was. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. They definitely got the Disneyland e-ticket. So uh, that's my feedback for that one. Um, interesting hearing on uh, one of the podcasts that Nick also had a laser strike. Um, I'm glad he didn't have to go through all the hoops that I did. Um, visiting two different eye doctors a couple different times, going through the FAA. Um, and the, the paperwork was the biggest pain in the neck. And just like in Captain Nick's case, they still haven't caught my guy. Um, one other bit of feedback on the latest episode, uh, Captain Jeff was specifically mentioned me about, um, QFE. Uh, I've never used it. Uh, I take that back. I have used it, uh, at American Airlines. I've never used it. Uh, they stopped using it, uh, about a year and a half, two years before I got hired. Thank goodness. When I did use it was in the military when we would go, uh, when I was stationed in Germany, we would go over to the British spaces like Gutersloh. Uh, where they would make us use their QFE settings. Uh, and we called it Queer Frickin' English because it was queer. Uh, having to do that, cranking the, to be your altimeter showed your uh, AGL. It was like, like 
they referred to in the podcast was it was a poor man's radar altimeter. So I know American did do it and uh, they do not do it anymore, which is probably a good thing. So hope you're all having a good time. Take care. God bless. All right. Thank you, Colonel Jeff, for that uh, great feedback and uh, keeping us straight regarding uh, the peculiarities or the differences in auto throttle systems and that kind of thing. Um, what do you think? Uh, he mentioned, Captain Nick, uh, the uh, something about the auto throttle systems, and he wasn't sure how it worked in the in the Airbus three hundred and thirty and three hundred and forty. Yeah, well, I, I think ours is to be uh, truthful. Although some people don't like the fact that they don't move, is a much more uh, logical and uh, less confusing system in this kind of an environment. Um, yeah, the, we, the the problems of the toga button and the disconnect button have been the cause of a number of incidents uh, employing aircraft that employ that. In the Airbus, uh, you move the throttles at the point, of, you know, in the flare and close them, and, and that's it. I mean, effectively, you've disconnected the auto thrust uh, at that point, and um, you've, you've got control of the engines yourself. They're just ordinary throttles now. So once you close them, you know that the engine is going to come back to idle. You can reach forward grab the um, thrust reverse. And I think that's one of the reasons perhaps why Epos decided not to have motors that actually follow the engine RPM on their throttles or follow the en engine dem demand on the throttle. So there would be none of this confusion over how you disconnect it and, and is it disconnected and is it going to try and open the throttles and hit a demand or not. Uh, we just close the throttles. That's it. It's out. It's off. It's it's not uh, uncommon or unusual on uh, our tail-mounted engine airplane um, that Dana and I fly that uh, will occasionally have a thrust reverser that is um, uh, out of service and will go ahead and use uh, the operating thrust reverser unless we're landing on a contaminated contaminated runway or whatever. But uh, uh, it's not a it doesn't introduce a whole heck of a lot of yaw on the type of airplane that Dana and I fly. But I would imagine, as Jeff said, when you're flying an airplane with uh, wing-mounted engines, it's definitely more a significant factor. Well, I've, I've used uh, – sorry, Dan, I'll be – have a good one. No, I've, I've uh, used um, uh, 330 with a thrust reverser out, and uh, it's not really a problem. It's, it's quite manageable. Um, of course, if if the, the difference is that the thrust reverse, uh, the amount of force that that produces, is not actually huge in comparison with an engine that's run, run itself up to full power going forwards. That, yeah. that's an enormous that does not difference. help. So I think that was the big difference <laughs> yeah. on this one. Sorry, Dana. Dana. Yeah, you, you got a little scaping there. So, yeah, I think you're uh, just for your information, your your signal. You've occasionally uh, dropped out for a while and then come back, and uh, so I don't know if you're hardwired no. or not. I, I'm guessing I not. am. I am indeed hardwired wow. okay. directly to the modem. So I don't know. It, it's got to be something with the weather or yeah, that I got. In <laughs> wait, I just learned that <laughs> you completely went blank. <laughs> Yeah, they were monitoring you, Dana. As soon as you started criticizing them, they just cut they you. Like, cut the just say over and over again. <laughs> I love AT and T. I got into a fight with AT and T. I love AT and T. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, it, this whole uh, fiber issue has been just a, a, a nightmare, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, what I was going to say is, is the aircraft Jeff and I fly. 
because of the location of the thrust reversers, if you pull too much reverse, um, you can blank out the effective effectivity of the uh, of the rudder. So um, you got to be careful. Well, you know, we've had numerous changes in guidance over the years. It used to be okay, idle reverse brakes only. Um, then they went up to 1.3, and then they went to as much as 1.6 on dry runways. And well, okay, the memory, memory muscle, muscle memory caused a, an unfortunate incident of a controllability issue in a in a New York airport. I won't talk about specifics there. Um, but so they backed it down to 1.3 and only on dry surface. So, you know, the effectivity of, of the reverses on the 88, the 90 is not an issue yet. 90 is a fantastic stopping aircraft. You pull the reverses, it automatically goes to the 1.3 and the brakes and, and the reverses on that aircraft. You can stop that aircraft probably sh in most cases shorter than the general aviation airplane. It, it will stop and it'll stop now. Um, so the 88, even when you just have one reverse, it's it's advisable only to pull idle reverse uh, if you have only one reverser because you can pull too much and pull the nose pretty quickly on, on that airplane. So Yeah, when I, when I started flying it almost 16 years ago, um, the rule was, you know, you don't um, put it into reverse until the nose wheel is actually in contact with the runway. And so now it doesn't matter if you blank out your rudder or not because you have your nose wheel on the runway and that's going to provide directional control and, you know, keeping you straight down the runway. Um, I don't know why we don't go right back to that, but I know that's one of the iterations uh, that uh, we have our rules now. But, you know, when the braking action is less than good and that kind of thing. So they want to make it confusing. I know, it's, you know uh, it, it should be just put the nose, nose wheel on the ground and pull reverse. Yeah. We didn't have any problems with it back then. Oh, well, never did have any, but what, what they want to do is they want to save a little bit, that little bit of, of brake usage. Mm. Um, well, then stop doing flaps 28 landings. Right. Let's go flaps yep. 40. I agree with you. I'd... Yeah. Oh, well, yes. one half uh, MV squared or whatever. Isn't that the kinetic energy uh, yeah. formula? An extra 700 feet or something like that. Yeah. Oh, anyway, we could go on and on and on with, uh, that kind of stuff. But uh, anyway, thanks again, Jeff, for your feedback. We do appreciate that. It's always good to hear from him. Um, and some more feedback on a topic that we discussed on an earlier episode. This is from First Officer Mike. And he says to us, good morning, APG crew. Well, not morning anymore for us. Anyway, first of all, I need to congratulate Nick on his excellent Boeing landing in the sim at PTUK 200th. About a few weeks ago. Yay. Yay. Uh, he always knows. Oh, I, I did one of those? Yeah. I did. <laughs> well, it's, it's, the reason it why. I've seen why the videos. Was, the reason why it was such a good landing is because it wasn't sitting there calling him a retard. Retard, retard, retard. I, I don't think that's very polite. Damn. Well, that's what your airplane calls you every time you land the airplane. Okay, let's let's watch our political correctness now. <laughs> um, uh, HR is here. Yeah, I know. They, they so might do we'll that move in Boston. On from this. <laughs> anyway, so he continues. Uh, he, he, referring to Captain Nick, always knows there's a seat on Acme Red 787s, and included with that seat is a few more days off a month. 
Anyway, first of all, on this piece of feedback that I'm writing in is a question that I am asked quite a lot of the current 787 engine issues, which are being caused by Rolls-Royce. And it is a question, uh, he goes on to say, what is the problem with the engines and what are they doing to rectify the situation? It's a question that is branded about or bandied, bandied about, I think is what he means, uh, pretty much with uncertain answers. Apart from the words engine wear, the only images which we've seen are those of the Air New Zealand 787s where part of the fractured compressor blade came away and caused further damage. But in those images, there is clear and significant damage caused by that, not of the loose compressor blade. I, did I read that correctly? I'm not sure exactly. I understand what he's saying there. Do you? Uh, I think he's suggesting that some of the damage was uh, from engine wear and some was from perhaps that loose compressor blade. No. He's in the uh, chat room. Perhaps we can oh. castigate him now about his standard of English. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can do that. I'll, I'll stand back and, and uh, <laughs> just watch. Uh, okay. The problem... Uh, you know, this is written by an Englishman, and so perhaps we should have an Englishman read it, because I'm... I'm oh, yes. Maybe then we'd understand better. Yeah. Yes, probably understand a lot better. Uh, do I have to? Yes. Okay. The second paragraph there. The problem... The problem, uh, which seems to have arisen from the new advanced technologies being used in Rolls-Royce Trent 1000 engines, and also early signs of the Rolls-Royce Trent uh, XWB, is caused more from the excessive heat, which is created during flight... Uh, and from general use. The extreme heat and cooling of the blades is causing fractures, also known as hot corrosion, where the heat and gas is emitted from the engine uh, as what's causing the damage. The thermal barrier, which has been attached and baked to the blades on production, hasn't stuck or molded correctly, uh, which in turn burns the thermal barrier, and the stresses attached to the blade are ever-increased. And also, excuse me, I'm getting all choked up. It is pretty emotional. Very. <laughs> no, I think I'm catching the cold. Oh, then again. No. Yeah. So uh, the uh, stresses attached to the blades are ever increasing, and that also leads to the leading edge eroding around the cooling holes. Now, those cooling holes obviously uh, need to be free. So this in turn leads to that situation to occur with New Zealand. Uh, Rolls-Royce have identified the fix and seem to come up with a solution, but it's uh, now a case of having the workshop space and manpower to fix the issue issues which are going on. Currently, uh, like me read, we have four AOC, which all require new engines, and it's also the same with Air New Zealand. The situation is that bad with the aircraft that both companies are having enough slings to remove the engines quick enough to give them a stable turnaround time. To give uh, the APG an idea of how much stress the engines were under uh, during the summer uh, JMB operations, um, if during certain, that's Johannesburg, which is obviously a hot, high airfield. If during certain atmospheric conditions and payload, uh, if full thrust or toga, as uh, the brilliant Airbus uh, pilots refer Wait, to it as, doesn't say brilliant. was required on departure. I think Mike used different terminology, but we'll get back to that. <laughs> I like uh, it, the way he's cleaning it up on the fly. I love it. Yeah, I'm doing my best. <laughs> was required on the, because he doesn't actually write English. I don't know what language this is, but. Click on <laughs> was required on departure. That aircraft was taken out of service at base and was given a thorough check to make sure no problems uh, had occurred or had amassed. 
uh, a mass of so- something amata. What's that? Uh, did anyone do Latin? <laughs> no, obviously not. I hope this may answer some questions uh, from my followers and fellow APG listeners. Uh, keep up the good show, as always. And that's from a first He said episode. great show, not good show. <laughs> oh, okay. Keep up the great shows. Always. There you go. Uh, there you go. First off, some mic. Thank you. Thank you for doing And just going re- back really quick to that first paragraph, he said he meant to say that the images showed damage before the loose com- compressor blade. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Thanks for that. And uh, first of Mike, in his defense, says he speaks Yorkshire, uh, which is a, a, a dialect of English <laughs> spoken in coal mines and uh, on remote places of the United Kingdom. <laughs> okay. Um yeah. So uh, yeah. <laughs> there you go, Liz. Uh, amo, amast, amat. Thank you, Liz. That's what the phrase I was looking for. I've never heard of that. What does that mean? I don't know uh, any Latin. Well, Liz, <laughs> you should know. It's all Latin. Yeah. Doctors have to, have to do Latin. Yeah. Yeah. Don't yeah. Doctors have to do Latin, don't you? I I, I only know the the medically related terms. I know pig Latin. Doesn't mean yeah. I know any Latin. <laughs> Yeah, so that, that's that's just good insight. Thanks, uh, Mike. So it looks like the problem uh, seems to be this uh, uh, coating on the blade, which is uh, allowing uh, heat to get through, which is causing corrosion, uh, plus uh, a degradation to uh, the cooling holes. They obviously blow cooling air through the hottest of these blades uh, that uh, keeps the core of the blade and the leading edge cool. And uh, because these cooling holes are being blocked, that is degrading the blades much quicker than they expected. And I think the biggest problem is they're just not getting the the new uh, discs uh, fitted quickly enough because the engines need to come out of the aircraft. I think they're going back to Rolls-Royce. It takes quite a, a while for them to get fixed before they get back put back on the aircraft. And in the meantime, uh, an awful lot of boroscoping is being done. In fact, um, uh, I was speaking to someone about it the other day saying, aren't the um, Boeing guys a bit worried about flying around? And he said, well, actually, um, it, you know, it's a bit like uh, you're continually having your heart examined to make sure that it's still beating correctly. You know you've got a good heart. And they're continually boroscoping the core of these engines and tracking uh, the the condition of the blades. So when they do fly, they know they've got very safe engines, whereas on the average jet engine, any boroscope them when they have to once in a blue moon whereas they, they these engines are under the microscope all the time so uh, they're actually uh, probably safer than they would be normally hmm. good point hmm. all right i was gonna say i know pig latin me too ude uye ixpe igpe atenle sca hey yay <laughs> no, i was talking about barbecue <laughs> to know. oh Oh, yeah. Well, it's a hard word in pig Latin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Barbecue. Okay. Bay. Barbecue. Bay. <laughs> barbecue. Bay. Just the, barbecue bay. The, the science and language of barbecuing. Pigs. Yes. There you go. Okay. Um, on an earlier show, we talked about um, the uh, honor guard at uh, that some airlines uh, employ for transporting uh, military remains. And Charles Einerson. Uh, wrote in, he said, Charles Einerson here. And I was just listening to Jeff talk about transporting the remains of the Navy SEAL that was killed on New Year's, New Year's Day 
I've spent the last 12 years either conducting military funerals or acting as the coordinator overseeing the conduct of the funerals or the transfer of remains from an aircraft to the funeral home. I've personally conducted 4,000 funerals and six honorable transfers as a soldier and now manage 13 states in the Pacific Northwest that conduct roughly 2,000 funerals a month. I've always been impressed with the amount of respect that everyone from the baggage handlers to the crew of the aircraft have shown to our fallen, as well as the amount of support at places like Seattle, Tacoma, and Portland International. We've had water cannons, police escorts, rows of passengers lined up to show their respects. What we don't always have during these ceremonies is a member of the fallen's family to welcome them and the staff crew and passengers become a surrogate family for a time. I remember one transfer at the Spokane International Airport in Washington State where the only people that were on site to welcome the soldier was my honor guard, the ground crew, air crew, and passengers in the funeral home. The soldier's remains were being transported to Montana by ground, by ground, and the family couldn't afford gas money to welcome their son home. I thought it was incredibly sad that they were too poor to drive the 400 mile round trip to be with their son and uh, let's see I so he continues I started a nonprofit to help soldiers friends and family members attend funerals make medical appointments etc because of this mission and how it made me feel we pay for gas airline tickets or our favorite method is to link volunteer pilots with the people in need and help them claim a tax exemption for their kindness he says this is a shameless plug, but I think it's a good, that's not shameless. It's a, it's a good plug, uh, Charles. Uh, the message that I'm really trying to convey is that your time delays and your moment of silence for the deceased is important and doesn't go unnoticed. Thank you for caring. And again, this is Charles and he's the Northwest Regional Coordinator, Military Funeral Honors, Army National Guard, and the nonprofit that he has established to help people that just don't have the money to pay for the gas to get to where they need to be to help honor the fallen soldier. Uh, and this is, um, he's the president of this organization, Angels Wings Transport. And the uh, web address is awtrescue.org. And they're uh, byline is changing a life with every flight. Again, we'll put that uh, link in the show notes if you are so um, uh, swayed to want to help the organization raise some money so that they can, you know, do the right thing. Yeah, very worthwhile organization, sounds like. Yes. Thank you, Charles. Okay. And going back here to our show notes. Uh, what's next? Oh, Tom. This was a good one. Yeah. So Tom, uh, he's the one that uh, coordinated our Kansas City meetup yesterday, uh, sent in some audio feedback, and it's really hard to describe. So I'm going to let him uh, talk and uh, you'll understand. Hi, my name is Tom and I'm an AvGeek. It's a label I wear proudly. Sometimes when I'm listening to the APG podcast, I feel like this is how we all need to start our feedback. Captain Jeff, you may even consider changing the name of the podcast to AvGeeks Anonymous. Anyway, people that know me know that if the conversation ever turns to airplanes, I'm going to chime in. My wife knows that anytime we fly anywhere, I'm going to stop and say hi to the pilots on the flight deck. And I know that when the new weekly episode of the APG podcast is available, 
I'm going to download it for immediate listening. Like many of you, being a nav geek is something that you've had to deal with for most of your life. As a matter of fact, I remember the day it all began for me. It was a summer day in 1973. Now, if I were to sit down and have a conversation with any of you, I think most everyone could say that somehow your family growing up was dysfunctional. And mine was certainly no exception. I grew up with a dad that at times was hard to get along with. And like most of you, I could talk about bad memories and things that happened that would probably make some people go sit on a couch somewhere and pay a professional good money to talk about. Now, there's nothing wrong with therapy if that's what you choose to do, but it wasn't the path of healing that I chose. You see, when I was 19 years old, I had a choice to make. Was I going to have a relationship with my dad as an adult? As I thought about this decision, my mind went back to that summer day in 1973. I was five years old, and we lived in Los Angeles. My dad drove a bus for the city of Santa Monica. He worked hard, and with my mother, they had five kids. At this time in 1973, his youngest was one, and his oldest was 13. I was the second youngest at five. About once a month or so, Dad would go flying with the guy he worked with at the bus company. My dad became a private pilot in the late 1940s when he was a teenager. He worked at the Santa Monica Airport, washing and waxing airplanes, and that's how he paid for flight lessons. In the 50s, he went on to become a pretty good pilot. He even did some aerobatic displays on the airshow circuit for a few years. He even said learning aerobatics once saved his life. One time in a Cessna 150, he got into trouble and somehow he ended up in a flat spin. He swore he would have died that day, but his aerobatic training got him out of that flat spin at 1,300 feet above a Southern California orange grove. I'm sure wish I'd recorded that story with him. But the aerobatics ended when he married my mom in 1958 and they started a family. But he still flew recreationally for several years. So, back to that summer day in 1973. It was a Saturday morning. My dad was going flying with his friend from work. My older brother went with him most of the time. But on this day, dad pulled me aside and asked if going flying was something I'd like to do. I said, yes, of course. We drove to the Van Nuys Airport where we met his friend. I vividly remember looking out through the glass door at the FBO at Van Nuys and my dad pointing out to that white Cessna 172 with the mustard yellow stripe down its side. We finally walked out to the plane and I climbed into the back seat. I still remember fastening that seat belt and then later as we rolled down the runway, I had my forehead pressed up against the glass looking out the right side window down at the wheel. I remember the moment it broke contact with the ground, and I realized we were flying. I remember so much about that day. I remember the airports we visited, Chino, Fullerton, Santa Paula. I remember eating a BLT sandwich with potato chips at a coffee shop at one of those airports. I remember standing in the open Bombay of a B-17 while we were at Chino. I remember sitting in the right seat of that Cessna 172 while my dad was in the left seat and he let me take control for a few minutes. I didn't do much, but I remember feeling the weight of the controls in my hands and thinking my dad was something special because he knew how to fly this plane. 
and I also remember him flying me over the Queen Mary in Long Beach. So when I was 19 and I was trying to decide whether or not I should have a relationship with my dad, this first flight with him is what I thought of. I called him and told him I had a million reasons to never speak to him again, but I had a million reasons to talk to him. I asked him if he remembered that Saturday in 1973. He said he did, and we talked about it. I told him that down the road, when things get messy, we would always go back to aviation. It was kind of a reset button for us. I was an av geek because of him, and even though we moved from California to Missouri in 1978, and due to life circumstances, he never flew again as a pilot, we always had our love of aviation in common. I'll never forget visiting Boeing with him in Seattle in the early 90s. He loved Boeing. Sorry, Captain Nick. I do remember the first time he flew on an Airbus. It was an Airbus A320 with Northwest Airlines. He said the only thing he liked about it was that the seat was a little more comfortable than a Boeing 737, but that wasn't enough for him to switch his allegiance from Boeing. Also in the early 90s, we would spend hours talking about the 777 because that was during the time it was being developed. He would read anything he could get his hands on, and then he would call me to tell me what he found. And then there was that day in 1997 when he got to fly that Cessna bird dog. What a day that was. I hadn't thought about this day for a long time, but back on November 5th of 2016, Captain Nick shared a story with us on APG during his Plane Tales episode. He called it Flight in a Bird Dog. The Plane Tales from APG episode 244 was the story of Major Bung Lee of the South Vietnamese Army, escaping with his family in a Cessna bird dog. Major Lee, his wife, and their five children got into that bird dog and flew out over the ocean in an attempt to escape Saigon as it fell. He just so happened to find a U.S. aircraft carrier, and he safely landed on its deck. I won't try to retell the story here, but if you haven't heard it, I promise it's worth your time. What you need to know, though, is that Major Lee, his wife, and his five kids had crammed themselves into a two-seat airplane. Yes, seven people in a two-seat airplane. And they flew out over the ocean hoping to find an American ship. I just can't even imagine. Okay, so what does this have to do with me and my dad? I promise, I'll pull all of this together. When I heard this Plain Tales episode from Captain Nick, it reminded me of my dad flying the bird dog. You see, I moved to Virginia in the early 90s, and a guy I worked for introduced me to another guy that owned a small airport near where I lived. This guy's name was Rucker Tibbs. This man alone could be a topic for Captain, Captain Nick's Plain Tales episode for at least two episodes, and probably many more, but Rucker owned a bird dog. I got the pleasure of going for a ride with Rucker and his bird dog. Rucker was still, if Rucker was still with us, he would definitely be known on this show as the original old curmudgeon. He had a rough exterior, but he was a great man with a heart of gold. As I was flying with Rucker that day and his bird dog, and we were coming in to land at his airport, I noticed that he didn't have any flaps down. I asked him over the intercom if he was going to put any flaps down. His response was, I don't need no damn flaps. That probably gives you an idea of the kind of guy Rucker was. Anyway, after our flight, I told Rucker that my dad would love to come visit him the next time he was in town. 
I told him dad was an old pilot that hadn't flown for almost 20 years, but he was a, an old tail dragger pilot that would get a kick out of visiting with Rucker and doing some hangar flying. He told me next time he was in town to bring him out. So sometime over the next couple of years, dad came for a visit. I took him out to visit Rucker and as soon as he arrived, the hangar flying began. They were two peas in a pod. Oh, how I wish I would have had a video camera that day. My dad was in heaven. After a couple of hours talking about flying, Rucker pointed at his bird dog and said, Let's go. My dad lit up like a kid at Christmas. He climbed in the back seat of that bird dog. He got some instruction from Rucker on where everything was, and off they went. They must have been gone for two hours. When they got back, all I could see was my dad smiling in the back seat. He said that he took control right after takeoff and flew the whole time they were up. Rucker tried to get Dad to land, but Dad said since he couldn't see the, the runway as well as he wanted to from the back seat, he went ahead and gave control back to Rucker for the landing. It was a day that my dad never forgot, and I haven't either. Captain Nick, when you shared that Plain Tales episode with us, it brought back this day to the forefront of my mind. Because that day, when Dad flew that bird dog, I somehow felt a connection with Major Lee. For Major Lee, that bird dog meant safety and life for his family. For me, that bird dog of Rutgers that my dad and I both got to fly in, it was safety for us. Aviation for me and dad was a, was a piece of safe, neutral ground. It's what allowed us to build back a father-son relationship. At times, it's all we had, but it was enough. The bird dog was one of the milestones along the way that we came across. To some people, it may not have meant much, but to us, it was safety and life. It got our blood flowing, and it got the conversation started. When I heard your story, Nick, I really wanted to call my dad and tell him about it. Well, I was in Pensacola last week, and I got to go to the Naval Aviation Museum at the Naval Air Station there, and I got to see Major Lee's bird dog. It's hanging from the ceiling, and I have attached a short video of it on, on display there. I'm sure that Captain Jeff will share the link if you want to see it in his show notes. I stood there on the floor surrounded by all kinds of historical military airplanes. But it was that tiny bird dog that had my attention. Thoughts of Major Lee escaping with his family, Rucker taking me flying, and my dad flying in a bird dog after almost 20 years of not flying, all flooded through my mind. So many good memories made me smile. So many great memories all pulled together because of this Plain Tales episode from Captain Nick. So is it a stretch to tie together a South Vietnamese major with my first flight in 1973, to my dad learning to be a pilot in the 40s, to an old curmudgeon in Virginia, to me deciding when I was 19 to salvage a damaged relationship with my dad? The answer is, yep, it's a stretch but I don't care. I lost my dad a few years ago. And yes, I can look back and think of bad and damaging things that happened between us when I was a kid. But why should I? I decided when I was 19 to not focus on those things, so I don't. I focus on things that we had in common and things that we both loved. And on the top of that list was aviation. So why do I listen to APG? Because I'm an av geek, and because of the people I get to hear every week, and because of the memories it stirs up, and because if my dad was still here, 
we would be listening together. And I know for sure he'd be suffering from the APG syndrome, just like I do. So thanks, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Dr. Steph, Dana, and everyone else that's part of this big family. Thanks to all of you. And let me encourage you, if you happen to have a damaged relationship with someone you should be close to, fix it and fix it now. Think of something you both have in common and start there. I promise, 30 years from now, you'll be glad you did. Wow. Thank you so much, Tom. That was beautiful. It really was. I love that. I, I think that's really great. So. And very wise words. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very, very much so. And uh, it was great seeing him in person yesterday. And I, I was, Brilliant. I told him in person. I said, you know, I really enjoyed the uh, Avgeeks Anonymous feedback that you sent in, the audio feedback. And I said, I'm going to make every effort to make sure that we play it on our show today. And uh, so I'm glad I got a chance to do that. Yeah, it's fantastic. What I heard of it, of course, my internet crapped out on me. Oh no! Unfortunately, well, uh, we record this, and also it's in. I will definitely go no, back and listen, listen the whole thing. But what I heard was. <laughs> yeah. Was, listen, if you listen to nothing else of the show that you miss, listen to that. I'll listen, listen to it. Don't you? I listen back. Well, you know I what? Know. I think that he should also listen to um, this week's installment of Plain Tales, the Happy Bottom Riding Club. Don't you? Mm-hmm. I do. Right. Sure. Here we go. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, the Happy Bottom Riding Club. If Edwards Air Force Base ever had a heyday, it must surely have been when the likes of Jimmy Doolittle and Buzz Aldrin walked the walk amongst the hangars in the desert. Douglas test pilot Bill Bridgman flew the Skyrocket from there. Major Kit Murray took records in the Bell X-1A there, and of course, we surely all know the story of a young Chuck Yeager who first broke the sound barrier there, flying Glorious Glenis in 1947. This was a time when chisel-jawed, steely-eyed, sun-tanned pilots in aviator sunglasses flew the most remarkable experimental aircraft the world had ever seen. Ever higher, ever faster, exploring the extreme corners of the flight envelope, blasting themselves to the edges of space and up to speeds that seemed unbelievable only a few years earlier. Records tumbled, the first to a thousand miles an hour, then two thousand miles an hour, the first above Mach 1, then Mach 2, and Mach 3. The Bell X-2 climbed above 100,000 feet and then up to 126,000 feet, but safety equipment wasn't really keeping up with the technology of rocket planes that could fly to the outer edges of the atmosphere. Captain Mel Apt took his X-2 to Mach 3.2, that's 2,094 miles an hour, when he realised he was getting a bit far from base. As he tried to turn his aircraft, it began a series of diverging rolls and then tumbled out of control. 
His escape pod failed to operate properly when its main chute failed and he fell to his death. Captain Mike Adams was on an extreme test flight in an X-15 that had reached 266,000 feet. In the descent, it lost all semblance of stability and entered a steep spiral doing Mach 5. Passing 65,000 feet and still at nearly Mach 4, the airframe experienced plus or minus 15G vertically and 8G laterally before the airframe broke up, scattering itself over 50 square miles. Losses were common, and many a fine test pilot bought the farm when he pushed just a little too hard to see what was beyond. When a pilot felt like letting off some steam, there wasn't much beyond the base but desert. That was until a remarkable lady arrived and began serving drinks at a ranch called the Happy Bottom Riding Club. The base sat on the edge of the Mojave Desert, beside a dry salt pan. It was hot, desolate, and remote. It seemed a strange place for a society debutante from a wealthy family to choose to live, but here, not far from the threshold of runway 04, was where Florence Leotine Lowe called home. Florence was born to a wealthy family who were well-connected and considered part of high society. Her grandfather was Theodos Lowe, who was a pioneer in American aviation when he established the nation's first military air unit, the Army of the Potomac's Balloon Corps, during the American Civil War. As part of the Union Army, he and his team of prominent aeronauts performed aerial reconnaissance on the Confederates. Floating over Confederate positions in his hydrogen balloon, Thaddeus Lowe soon got the nickname of the most shot-at man in the war. After the war, his skill as an inventor bought considerable wealth and he moved his family to Pasadena in California, where he built a 24,000-square-foot mansion. Only fitting for a man who started a water gas company, founded the Citizens Bank of Los Angeles, established several ice plants, and opened an opera house. It was into this family that Florence was born. During her formative years, she attended the finest private schools and became an accomplished horsewoman, but Florence wasn't going to become the average debutante. Her behaviour at school was becoming something of a problem and she was moved from one prestigious establishment to another, often running away just to have fun. However, she grew into a confident, self-possessed and athletic woman, but it was her adventurous and independent nature that was to define her, certainly not her arranged marriage to the Reverend Rankin Barnes. The life of a poor pastor's wife certainly didn't appeal. The first time she kissed her husband was on her wedding night, and although she tried for a while to fulfil her role, it didn't take long before she was bribing the kids in her catechism class with jackknives to get them to behave. To escape the boredom, she started riding horses in the burgeoning film industry in Hollywood, and was so adept she could carry a camera on her shoulder whilst riding. Florence Barnes' wild ways grew, and she took up with a college student, 
until her indiscretions became such an embarrassment that she was sent on a cruise to South America. When she returned, she didn't stay for long. Despite being the only girl on the cruise, she joined friends who were being hired by a banana boat and headed back to South America. They soon discovered that the boat was running guns for revolutionaries in Mexico. On arrival, they were arrested, but after six weeks, Barnes and the helmsman escaped and set off through the countryside on stolen horses. As they rode, Barnes quipped that shoot her companion, looked like Don Quixote. Shute replied that in that case she was Pancho. Despite being corrected, the name was Sancho, Florence liked it, and from that moment on she became Pancho Barnes. It didn't take long for Pancho to need another adventure, and she turned her attention skyward. In the spring of 1928 she started taking pilot's lessons. Her instructor was a World War I pilot, and the aircraft only had one instrument in it, an oil gauge. She used a keychain to work out if she was slipping or skidding her turns, and looked over the side to see how high they were. To check for fuel, she dipped a string into the fuel tank and guessed how far they could go. Pancho was immediately hooked and she bought herself a travel air biplane for $5,500. She was more captivated by the thrill of the early days of flying than deterred by the dangers. On a trip to San Francisco in 28, her engine quit eight times, but each time she made a safe emergency landing. For a while, Pancho ran a barnstorming show and competed in air races, Despite her crash in the 1929 Women's Air Derby, she returned in 1930 under the sponsorship of the Union Oil Company and won, breaking Amelia Earhart's world woman's speed record in her Type R mystery ship with a speed of 196.19 miles an hour. Pancho got work in Hollywood as a stunt pilot for movies. She flew in several air adventure movies of the 1930s, including Howard Hughes' Hell's Angels, and she also founded the Association of Motion Picture Pilots, so the airmen could get fair wages for their often death-defying work. Pancho worked constantly, but she was better at spending money than saving it. Her home was party central, constantly full of flying and movie industry friends. She had an open-door, open-bar policy, and she never expected her guests to help foot the bill. In addition to spending lavishly, she used her house and other property as collateral to buy more real estate without any regard of how she would make payments. Pancho lost most of her money in the Great Depression, but with what she had left of her inheritance, she bought a four-room house and hay barn, on an 80-acre ranch in the middle of nowhere, near Muroc Dry Lake. The nearest town was 20 miles away, but there was an encampment for an Army Air Corps squadron and bombing practice area nearby. She created an airstrip out of the hard earth and built guest rooms so her friends could fly in for a visit. By 1941, she had 360 acres, with a farmhouse, stables, and an almost unheard-of luxury in the desert, 
a swimming pool. Pancho opened her heart and home to the local pilots, and even Colonel Shoup, the commanding officer of the nearby flight test centre, used Pancho's ranch to host parties for visiting brass. In 1939, a civilian pilot training program was established and Pancho was asked to provide aircraft and instructors for the flying school. For Pancho, one of the students stood out from all the others. Over the years, she had had many lovers, but meeting the young pilot, Robert Nichols, occurred at the time her husband asked for a divorce, freeing her to get married. The pilot training program lasted two years, her marriage to Nichols lasted two weeks. Miroc Army Air Base became Edwards Air Force Base. With the influx of the Devil May Care Air Force test pilots, there were even more handsome guys to join Pancho's Hollywood friends to hang out, get a good meal and be entertained. She could match them with flying stories, jokes, drinking, smoking and swearing, and they loved her. She never kept proper accounts and had no idea how much it cost her to host her friends. She often ran short and couldn't feed the horses or pay bills, so she took out several loans on her property. However, Pancho was happy. In 1944, she met Don Shalita, a handsome show dancer, six years her junior. He was in the twilight of his career, so he moved to the ranch, and a year later they were married. This time, Barnes broke her record for actually living with a husband, a full four months. Pancho's financial problems were eased for a while after she received an inheritance from her uncle. She used it to improve her property, calling it Pancho's Fly-In. She opened her own airfield with two runways and let anyone tie down their plane for free. There was a hangar, repair shop and flight school. She added rooms with air conditioning, the only ones in the desert, and private bars for her guest house. Barnes built a racetrack and there was even a fish pond in the shape of the Air Force emblem. She advertised in the Los Angeles newspapers for families to enjoy her modern flying dude ranch for $49 a week per person, meals included. She had a bevy of pretty girls to serve and keep the pilots amused, but never crossed the line into a house of ill repute, although there were plenty of rude, nude fun to be had. During the height of the Happy Bottom Riding Club's success, there were over 9,000 members worldwide. You never knew who would show up at the club for a steak dinner, sit in with the jazz combo, or sing with the other customers at the piano bar. It was not unusual to find heads of state, high-ranking military, actors, actresses, famous writers and artists, or even just your next-door neighbour at Pancho's Bar and Restaurant. One of the newer Happy Bottom guests was pilot Mac McKendry, who ended up at the ranch after returning from overseas. He was divorcing and needed a friend and a place to live. He found both with Pancho, and he was there for her when she in turn needed support. In addition to the usual carousing, in June 1952, Pancho was involved in her fourth wedding to Mac. She was 51 years old, and Mac was only 32. 
Commander Al Boyd gave the bride away, and Chuck Yeager stood up as her attendant. The ceremony lasted barely a minute, was presided over by Judge J.G. Sherrill, and witnessed by 650 guests. Then the couple exchanged vows again in a Native American ceremony, officiated by Chief Lucky and Little Snow White of the Blackfoot tribe. The wedding banquet included four roasted pigs, 80 pounds of potato salad, 16 gallons of jello, and a 50-pound wedding cake. One of the entertainers at the reception was Lassie, the Wonder Dog. Later that year, a new CO came to Edwards, who didn't enjoy Barnes' hospitality in the same way as his predecessors had. The base was also expanding, and the government was buying up all the surrounding property. Pancho resisted in court, as she didn't want to give up what had taken her almost 20 years to build. The FBI investigated her for illegal activity, but the worst they could accuse her of was bad credit. The government finally took possession of her ranch and gave her a meagre $185,000. A few months later, Barnes came home to find smoke coming from her property. She lost everything in the house, the barn and the dance hall to a fire that must have broken her heart. She fought for a fair value for her land and was eventually awarded $375,000. A main argument in her defence was that her grandfather had founded the United States Air Force. The disaster was the beginning of the end for Pancho. She tried to start again a few miles north in the desert and took out mortgages on a thousand acres with a little cafe and gas station. She treated herself to horses, a Stinton airplane and a catamaran but she lived in an abandoned rock building with a dirt floor and broken windows. She had big plans for Gypsy Springs, but never managed to make it work. Edwards Air Force Base had grown into a self-sufficient community, and the demand just wasn't there. In later years, Pancho managed to reconnect with many old-timers, and part of the officer's mess at Edwards was renamed the Pancho Barnes Room. In her later life, Pancho found herself alone. An old friend offered to let her live rent-free in a 20 by 25 foot house. Her best asset was storytelling, and she was invited to speak at local clubs and banquets, regaling audiences with the spellbinding tales of her life. In the summer of 71, some of her old friends at Edwards, including Buzz Aldrin, threw a party for her 70th birthday on the base. She could have had a life of security and wealth, but instead chose to live life to the full and enjoy every moment as if it was her last. Pancho ended up living off memories and dreams. In the spring of 1975, she missed a speaking engagement and was found dead in her little home. She was cremated and special permission was granted from the USAF to spread her ashes from the air over the site of the Happy Bottom Riding Club. The ashes started to drift towards the ground, but the slipstream blew them back into the cockpit of the Cessna. Even in death, Pancho loved a good joke.
another fine installment of Plain Tales. Wow, this Pancho Barnes, uh, quite a woman. Oh yeah, I think she, <laughs> I think she was more than many a man could have. <laughs> you know, I was looking at pictures of her on online while I was listening to your Plain Tale, and I'm thinking, yeah, she looked like um, she's just a character. Yeah, she right? looked like, like she was uh, definitely a character. Absolutely. And uh, she was the center of just an amazing collection of aviators, wasn't she? I mean, she was a great aviator in her own right. But to be there with all those fantastic pilots doing all those amazing things, uh, quite remarkable, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would love to have been a fly on the wall of that. Uh, that or just to, like, hang uh, out and have a drink with her, you know. Oh, yeah. That'd be amazing. Or be married to her for four months. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. It'd be pretty tough, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would break the record, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. I realize yeah. that my um, camera's not on. It's just not um, behaving right now. But it, it'll wake up at some point, I think. Uh, in the meantime, we just have to look at my little avatar flashing in the background. No, we can't see anything. Oh, okay. It's just blank. Just blank. Well, it's kind of like the, uh, the contents of my brain right now. <laughs> uh, fair enough. I'm sure that's not true. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, I, you know what? I still haven't done my homework. I haven't uh, yet watched um, the right stuff, but I promise I'm going to make that a priority this weekend. Oh, it's a, it's a great movie. I mean, it's one of my favorites, so I think you'll enjoy it. All right. Okay. Shall we move on with some more feedback? Mm, sure. Okay. Oh, there's just a, I was just going to mention, sorry, Jeff, mm -hmm. that uh, the, the idea for that came from uh, Ham Radio Jim. So I meant to mention that mm -hmm. uh, before we uh, left. Oh, it. I didn't give uh, you a chance, Jim, did I? Sorry. That's all right. Uh, Jim was uh, stationed quite, uh, sorry, stationed twice at the Air Force uh, Flight Test Center at Edwards. Oh. Um, so he knew the place well. So um, and when he sent it, he, he's because he's a ham radio guy, he said 73s. So that means, uh, you know, good wishes. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, and goodbye also, 73. So uh, 73 to you, uh, Whiskey to November Sierra Foxtrot. Awesome. So uh, did Ham Radio Jim date uh, Poncho? Poncho Barnes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he'll have to let us know. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. I don't think he's quite that old. No, I don't think so either. Um, what was I going to say? Hmm. So where were you? Yes. I don't know. I was going to say something really clever. <laughs> oh. oh, I know what it was. I'm I'm watching um, the chat room here, and uh, this is for Rick Bell, Captain Rick. Captain Rick, quit paying attention to the live chat and this podcast. You need to be concentrating on your video. You yes, know, the one we're, we're recording this just for you. Yeah. So <laughs> when you can catch up, it'll it'll be here. <laughs> we need you to know. All there is to know about emergency exits and how to open them. On the C-17, yes. Yes. Yeah. He was asking me if uh, I had been to Altus Air Force Base, and sadly, yes, <laughs> spent about three months there one, uh, one year in 1982. Fun, fun memories, it sounds oh, like. Oh, no. It was, uh, at least it's not a dry county anymore. Um, it was... Uh, uh, what do you say? You can get beers that are uh, 3.2? Uh, you couldn't even do that, I think, when I was there. On Sundays? Yeah, maybe you could. Yeah, on the base you could. That's like being yeah. in Utah, but it's really, it's not a bad thing. That just means you can have drink a more. few more. <laughs> exactly. Drink lots of beer. <laughs> it's, like, it's like hydration. Think of it that way. Oh, okay. It's mostly water. Oh, Liz says that the sound is off. Oh, well, that's all right. Maybe at some point he'll be listening to this in the future. Yeah. Okay. We can send him some hand signals. Yeah. <laughs> 
that's quite rude. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to see the, the hand signal that's, that, that's that, also rude. that, that uh, Captain Nick and Dana is giving Rick, you need to watch the video. So there we go. All right. That's not rude. Yeah, that's uh, what is that? Star Trek? Live long and prosper yes. or whatever? Live long and prosper. Yeah. From the uh, from uh, Spock's home uh, planet of, uh, oh my God, I'm having a brain fat. Oh, is that Vulcan. what it was called? Vulcan. Oh my God, I'm, I'm having a brain fart. Fat. Fat. Okay. Sounds much better when you say it like that. Yes. Okay. Uh, just quickly, uh, Charles, um, not the same Charles that uh, wrote in about the honor guard, but uh, uh, this one says, and, uh, and he sent this to us uh, before Christmas. So sorry it's taken so long for us to get to your feedback, uh, Charles. Um, and so I'm sure you've seen this stall and roll of a Boeing 717, actually a McDonnell Douglas 95, but just in case. And then he gives us the uh, link to uh, avgeekery.com. Uh, that's a great name, isn't it? Avgeekery. Um, and the title of this uh, article, that time a Boeing 717 went inverted during testing. And uh, I'm not going to read the thing, so you can you can look at it yourself. But there is a video posted on Vimeo where they were doing a test flight of the 717 in warning area W291 over the Pacific coast, uh, off the Pacific coast of uh, California. And anyway, it's uh, it's really interesting. If you want to see something pretty amazing, how this uh, this airplane basically goes inverted, I think, at some point and nose down. Uh, definitely an unusual oh, yeah. attitude. And uh, Well, it gives a nice little... Uh, picture of what the aircraft is doing because it's hard to tell from just watching the video because mm -hmm. it's hard to see outside the cockpit windows but you can actually see a, a little depiction of what the aircraft's attitude is in the the corner uh -huh. when you're watching the video and it definitely rolls all the way over yeah so yeah and you don't really you just want to watch other people be in that position or if you're maybe in an aerobatic airplane but not an airliner well, i think i think when it first starts like when the roll first starts someone goes Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. <laughs> Yikes. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Charles, for saying very, very cool. That, I'm sorry. So. Say again. I was at, but then they remained very calm after that and did what they were supposed to do. So they were thinking about uh, how they were going to walk off the airplane with the soiled pants. Yeah. Um, let's see. Liz sent in this article. Very interesting article, by the way, by. Uh, I-I-T-S-E-C. I'm not sure that has something to do with, um, I don't know. What does that stand for? I'm not sure. I have no idea. Anyway, ITSEC 2017, best paper for understanding the minds of jet pilots. I mean, can you really understand the minds of jet pilots? Well, you can try, but I don't think you'll fully uh, quite understand. Um, learning how to fly a jet is extremely demanding. Not only does it uh, require a high degree of skill, uh, but it has to be matched with an enormous amount of information processing from the aircraft's dashboard. Uh, we don't call a it a dashboard. dashboard. <laughs> <laughs> dashboard. <A> technical issue. <laughs> You've got your, you know, uh, your cup holder. Your <laughs> your, uh, oh, wait. Yeah. Um, these have to be managed under high physical stresses. Becoming a jet pilot takes hundreds of hours of training to achieve proficiency. And sadly, some never do. Um this comes at a very high cost, and the rate at which pilots learn varies greatly. For years, the aviation industry has been challenged with the question of how to measure training effectiveness. Anyway, in this paper, and it is interesting, by the way, you should look at it, read it. It's in the show notes. Uh, the uh, they, they used a, um, a device called a neuro 
tracker system. And uh, they did some of these tests in a real airplane, an L-29. Is that, that's made in Czechoslovakia, right? Is that, is that right? Yeah, I, just from my memory, I think it's one of the jet trainers. Yeah. I, I will check. And, um, and also a uh, simulator. And they, what they did was when they were having the pilots perform certain maneuvers, uh, they also introduced uh, this NeuroTracker program. I guess they had to do some kind of puzzles. Or I'm not sure exactly what they had to do. But they learned really quickly that uh, pilots were um, maxed out and their – um, their skills uh, were at least um, well. They were drastically reduced. Their skills uh, to to perform whatever the neuro tracker was having them perform, um, using up almost all their spare cognitive cap- capacity. Anyway, so it's an interesting thing. And the another thing that I thought was interesting in this was that the uh, the simulator uh, version of this testing and maneuvering had less effect on the mental and physiological loads than a live flight. So. Um, I guess that mm. they could use that information to maybe enhance or perfect, you know, our training in the simulator to, uh, I don't know. I, I hope that doesn't mean that they're going to load us up even more when we're in the simulator. No, I think it has more to do with, uh, at least my take on, on what that means is that when you're in the simulator, perhaps the consequences aren't as high uh, of actions. Yeah. Um, so it's easier to divide your attention because you go, oh, well, if I, you know, screw up something in the simulator, it's just the simulator. So let me pay attention to this puzzle that I'm being asked to do for just a moment because I know I'm being tested on this. So does that same type of effect happen during actual, uh, you know, if the simulator session were for actual training, you don't want people to have divided attention while they're doing that. So how do you minimize that, um, tendency towards distraction because you know that it's not you know, in the back of your mind, you know, yes, I'm here, I'm here to be learning, I'm here to be doing this training, but also the consequences aren't the same as when I'm in an actual aircraft. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was taking away oh, from it. Well, cool. Very interesting. And the Aero L29 is the Delphin, uh, in, in English, Dolphin, uh, made uh, in Czechoslovakia um, by Aero uh, Vorochody. And uh, is a low-tech trainer, tandem-seated, T-tailed, uh, single-engine jet trainer. I believe uh, a lot of places like that place down in uh, Kissimmee, Florida, that does the um, uh, the unusual attitude training. Um, they use this jet, uh, and a lot of other people do as well, for for various training uh, here in the States. Oh, interesting. Yeah. They're probably they're probably selling them for two a penny. I suspect. Yeah, I think that they can get a really good deal on those things. Yeah. Anyway, thanks, Liz, for uh, making us aware of that. Again, if you want to read the full report, that's uh, in the show notes. Um, we have a new follower from the UK, Woo-hoo. Pete G. I guess that uh, we can. Yay. Welcome to the APG. Oop, again, that should have been a nice fade out, but it wasn't. Um, Hi, Jeff and the crew. Um, I've found your podcast and, and rapidly displaying the APG syndrome symptoms. Uh-oh. Oh, I knew I need to do something with this program here. When I'm touching the button, it's supposed to fade out. Apparently. Oh, I know it. Here we go. APG syndrome. 
APG syndrome. Well, now my camera on my laptop has become active over here, a different angle. There you go. <laughs> All kinds of crazy stuff going on here in the studio. Um, anyway, he, uh, Pete, works as an airfield duty manager at, an, at a UK airport with two parallel runways on the border between Cheshire and Greater Manchester. I've worked here for over 30 years and have been ADM for four years now, and I'm still as fascinated with aviation as I was all those years back when we had uh, BAC 111s and the like here. We now have A350 and A380 plus a good few bin liners and 777s. I don't fly, but maybe one day, hey? Keep up the great work. I look forward to many more podcasts. Thank you, Pete G. And welcome. Welcome aboard. Welcome. And yeah, most certainly. I'm, I'm uh, just seeing if I can work out uh, what airport that is. Yeah, he's kind of being a little cryptic there. Oh, yeah, it's Acme it's Airport. Oh, it could be Acme. <laughs> I thought it might have something to do with the Beatles, but that's only got one runway. Oh. And it's the wrong side. So, uh, oh, well. It'll, it, yeah, there you go. It'll come to me. Pete, give us some more hints. Um, David writes in Jeff Steck. Jeff Steck. Jeff, Steph, Nick, and Dana. An interesting article on EASA and the UK. Hopefully, all bluff. What does that mean? Oh, I'm still Pete. working out the airport. Uh, but just going back to Pete. Pete, yep. did you see my whitetail land the other day? That'll that'll solve the quiz for ah, me. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. What was that? Uh... He, uh, David, uh, talking about this article, an interesting article on the uh, IASA oh, yeah. and UK. He says, "Hopefully, I'll bluff." Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's way too early to work out how we're going to reintegrate or integrate. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, what is all, hopefully I'll bluff? What does that mean? Oh, oh um, that means fake, bluffing, fake. You're bluffing, like, you're faking. Fake, yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha. All right, thank you. You can be in the bluff, in which case you have no clothes on. But uh, that's the, uh, buff. the buff, that's yeah. the buff. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, <laughs> I know what close. that means. <laughs> <laughs> no, the bluff is to to basically to lie to someone. And, uh, or okay. uh, I gotcha. I thought that was just a way that some people from his neck of the woods sign off. Use often in like uh, gambling situations oh. like you can like your poker face you could be bluffing and gotcha gotcha yeah uh, i just must be tired sorry um so nick since you were kind of launching into this article regarding iasa and uh the possible re-establishment of the caa what do you think about all this well the caa is going to have to be re-establishing properly in some form or another whether or not we follow just iasa's uh, rules and just tag on, I don't know, but it's a, it's way too early to say. It'll all happen one way or the other. It's no big deal. And and I don't really think that uh, either um, European aircraft are going to be prevented from flying in our airspace or vice versa. So, I mean, yeah, something will be negotiated. I don't know why people are getting all head up about it. The uh, good thing is that we might actually return to the uh, more sensible um, flight hours regulations or uh, duty regulations that uh, we had to give up when we uh, joined the EU and adopted DIASA, which uh, have meant that our pilots are now working considerably harder. And the uh, unions have always been against that because they said our rules were founded in uh, with safety as uh, the most paramount thing. 
Um, and perhaps if we move away from where we are, so we can go back to safer flight hours. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I know that there was a, a kind of a change when it transitioned from the CAA to EASA as far as duty rigs and that kind of thing, rest requirements. Yep. I mean, it didn't affect me too much long haul, but the short haul guys, certainly the, the, the potential for their hours to be increased um, went up a long way. Okay. Well, we'll keep our eye out for what happens with all that. Thank you, uh, David. A couple of years away, yeah. Okay. Um, Ian has an interesting question. Um, and I think, uh, Steph, you want to read the, the feedback from Ian? Sure, I can do that. It says, Dear APG crew, I was super delighted a few months ago when I did a Google search for aviation podcasts and came across this one. Thank God I did not click on Tina the underpaid slash overworked ticket agent podcast or Pat Down inside the TSA podcast. <laughs> I don't want to know about that one. <laughs> I am not a pilot yet, but I am enthralled by aviation. I live in southern New Jersey. Woohoo. And I believe Dr. Steph, having lived in this area at some point, may be familiar with some of the small airports and museums I have been visiting to feed my interest. For instance, South Jersey Regional, Cape May Airport. You know, I actually was not a pilot when I lived there, and I was in med school at the time, and I did not have a whole lot of chance to visit those places, but I should perhaps put them on my list when I go back to visit friends. Um, he says, I have come down with a delightful case of APG syndrome, but with your impressive 300 plus episodes, it will take me a while to get through all of them. So forgive me if this has been asked slash discussed before. I am a type 1 diabetic, which is a juvenile or generally juvenile version through no fault of my own. I am now 25 years old and wouldn't you know it that the one hobby or perhaps profession I would love to pursue has many, many medical restrictions for good reasoning. On becoming a private pilot, the restrictions are rather ambiguous, but they don't completely write me off on getting my private pilot's license. Unfortunately, it does explicitly say that I cannot be a professional pilot for now, but with industry changing and medical advances, perhaps the future may be different. In the meantime, I will continue my career as an analyst and pilot Boeings and Airbuses from my cubicle at work, when no one is watching, of course. Is there any insight anyone may be able to provide, or is there anyone in the APG community that I can be connected with? that may be able to offer solid advice regarding my condition and becoming a private pilot. Since this show is focusing on commercial uh, airline industry and not of general aviation, I feel required to ask a question in that regard, so relating to my personal plight. If the laws were changed for professional pilots, would you have complete trust in another pilot in the cockpit if you knew they had a condition like mine, but it was under strict regulation and control? Uh, I thank you all for your enthusiasm and humor, and I hope to listen to many, many more episodes and maybe even make an APG meetup sometime. Wishing you all clear skies, Ian and Gotti. I hope I said your last name right, Ian. Um, yeah, so good question. Um, certainly type 1 diabetes, um, uh, generally thought of as being, uh, uh, you have to treat that with insulin. So the, at least for here in the U.S., um, the FAA does give some guidance to the aviation medical examiners regarding this condition. Um, I think I have their most up-to-date information on this. It says it was last modified on July 21st, 2017. Um, but basically what they say is for any type of diabetes, whether it's type 1 or type 2, that is insulin treated, because both types can be insulin treated, depending on um, individuals. They say consideration will be given only to those individuals who have been clinically stable on their current treatment regimen for a period of six months or more. 
Um, they do have an, an established policy that permits the special issuance of medical certification to some insulin-treated applicants. So individuals under this policy are required to provide medical documentation regarding their history of treatment, any accidents, and their current medical status. They, um, If they are certificated, they will be required to adhere to monitoring requirements and are required or are prohibited from operating aircraft outside the United States because, to my knowledge, um, uh, the guidelines vary in different countries um, as to who is eligible to fly with insulin-treated diabetes. So they do, the uh, FAA does go on to give kind of this whole summary and evaluation protocol. Um, and to kind of go back real quickly to answer his uh, first question there about connecting with someone in the community or guidance on on what to do for his specific um, case, you know, and especially if you're not a pilot yet and you haven't started training, it's always a good idea to meet with an aviation medical examiner first um, because you want to make sure that for your particular uh, case, and like I said, this is something that's different for everyone in terms of how well people are uh, controlled with their diabetes. There's very specific guidelines on what your blood sugars can be and how many different types of low blood sugar episodes you have and what your symptoms are. Um you want to know if you qualify to hold a medical certificate in the first place, because without that, you will not have any type of um, pilot certificate going forward. So you want to make sure you have that. They do say, um, uh, so the guidelines they give definitely apply to the third class applicants, but they do say that first and second class applicants are evaluated on a case by case basis. So I'm not the expert there on this, this particular part of um medicine as it relates to aviation, but certainly something to discuss with your local aviation medical examiner. Uh, just real quickly, the types of things they're looking for. Um, they want to know about episodes of low blood sugars that you've had. That's called hypoglycemia because low blood sugars can result in loss of consciousness, seizures, impaired cognitive functioning, um, all kinds of things that you certainly don't want while piloting an aircraft. Um, they want to know, let's see, some other things here. Basically, they want to make sure you don't have any other of the consequences of diabetes. So uh, th that can include neuropathy or nerve damage that can cause impaired sensation. They want to make sure that it hasn't affected your cardiovascular system, your heart, your blood vessels. They want to make sure that it hasn't affected your eyes, which are another um, common uh, consequence of diabetes. So you need to have good vision. And then they're really pretty strict about how often you have to report and um, uh, give your medical history and documentation back to your aviation medical examiner and the FAA, which is pretty frequent. I think they did mention it was about every three months you have to submit information. So certainly more frequent than most people have to give any type of updated information to their AME. Um, and then just one last thing real quick, you know, if you are granted a uh, medical certificate, they do say that one half hour prior to flight, you have to check your blood sugar and it has to be within certain parameters. If it's too low, so less than 100, um, you have to take a glucose snack of 10 milligrams or 10 grams, excuse me, and then measure the, you have to wait a half an hour and then measure your uh, blood sugar concentration again. And then it has to be within 100 to 300. If it's at any time over 300, you have to cancel your flight. And then every hour during flight, you also have to measure your blood sugar and it still has to be within that 100 to 300 range. So pretty, pretty strict um, guidelines there. But it looks like Let's, it's not something that would completely 
eliminate. No, someone. it does certainly does not completely um, exclude you from becoming a pilot, at least here in the United States. Um, like I said, that varies in different countries around the world, and I don't have all of that information. Um, he did ask an interesting question at the end there. You know, if you um, were in the cockpit and your co-pilot um, had a similar condition where potentially it could have effects such like the ones we discussed where if the blood sugar was too low, you know, impaired cognitive functioning, um, potentially loss of consciousness, seizures. Um, but you knew that person had under strict control. Would you feel confident? So um, it's a good question. I guess it depends on how well you know the person and how well um, you've discussed those things before the flight. But I think for pilots who are reasonable and professional, and there's a lot of good ways to measure your um, blood sugars these days. There's even a lot of um, people who have diabetes will use an insulin pump, and a lot of those insulin pumps have continuous blood sugar monitoring with it. So in real time, it's consistently measuring what those blood sugars are, and it can give alerts for if it's too high or too low or outside of a specified range. I think that's about as good as it gets. So. It was an interesting, wasn't it? Because uh, I have type 2, mm -hmm. which is not nearly so much of a problem. But um, I off I sometimes tell the guys if we happen to be, get onto the conversation, but I don't always because uh, uh, low blood sugar isn't a problem for me at all. And it's always a, a long-term problem. Uh, this uh, diabetes is not short-term. So that's fine. Um, but my feeling is that I know that uh, you can fly as a commercial pilot in the UK uh, with type 1. Um, I suspect we, we wouldn't be allowed to fly together. There's, you know, with so, some medical conditions, the two pilots uh, uh, definitely can't fly in the same cockpit. So you need to have a young fit bloke fly with me, for example. Um, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure that I would be, feel very comfortable because the whole concept of our job is that we are uh, disciplined to carry out procedures. Uh, we do them uh, well. It's all part of our job, and we're we're uh, well practiced in that. And we usually have a very disciplined attitude towards that. And so long as they uh, adopted the same attitude towards their personal health, then and I expect they would, um, then I think that would be uh, you know perfectly normal, perfectly acceptable. Yeah, exactly. And I think, like you mentioned too, if um it goes along with those professionalism standards, but perhaps at the outset of a flight, if your diabetes is the type that is insulin controlled um, and you, there is any question about potentially having a low blood sugar event, it should be discussed before the flight so that perhaps the other pilot flying with you will know what to look out for because um, you'll presumably you'll be able to do something to remedy that if you're starting to show signs of it, you have a glucose snack with you um, to be able to to counteract the effects of the low blood sugars. So yeah, I, I seem to remember reading the protocol out of interest. Uh, and uh, yes, it is. You're obliged to tell the other pilot. And what's more, when you do your uh, regular uh, blood sugar tests, uh, you're obliged to show him the range that it's supposed to be and give show him the indication so that he can confirm uh, in case you've misread it because you're um, starting to suffer yourself uh, that uh, you are in the correct regime. Um, so, yeah, you do it as a, as a crew. Exactly. Well, and one of the things uh, that did talk about is the future of the care for diabetes. And you'll see, especially here in the States, I don't know about over in, in Europe, but there's a lot of commercials for these new medications that don't necessarily need you to, um, I guess, take 
insulin and, and helps you to regulate your A1C a whole lot better. I don't know. Maybe you can chime in on that. Yeah, that, that really probably applies more to type 2 diabetics who don't require insulin. Um Type 1 diabetics generally, as a rule, are going to require insulin of some type. And, um, it, you know, they're, the problem there being is that they're not producing that insulin at all. Um, and these other medications are there more to help regulate um, some insulin production and blood sugar um, control without getting into too many of the details there. But um, there are quite a few type 2 diabetics and probably the vast majority who do not actually require insulin. So what I was getting at there was was generally uh, for diabetics, whether type 1 or type 2, who are insulin dependent, because that's where it gets a little bit trickier in terms of um, being able to qualify for a medical certificate. Hmm. Excellent. Yeah, very good. Excellent. Um, well, as long as we have the doctor on call... Uh, why don't we oh. do the other uh, kind of uh, medical-related sure. question here from Nihilus regarding colorblindness? You want me to read that, or you want to? Hold on, I'm just finding it in my list okay. of. I can read it if you'd like. Sure. If you have it. There we go. Okay. Nihilus, yeah. He says, "Hi, can I be a pilot if I'm colorblind in red and green?" Um, and then I think this is all stuff that. Uh, Jeff yeah, has I, I, I put that in there. In here. Um. And this came from from another pilot from a, a forum, and I'll read through some of this, and I've got some additional information, too, from the FAA for this. Um, but basically, the this was posted on airliners.net, and this person says, the first thing you have to do is, is to figure out if you are actually colorblind or not. I fly 767s for Air Canada, Air Canada and was initially told that I could never fly because I was colorblind. I fought it. So when you go to an AME, they will give you a color test with the Ishihara color test. And I think anyone who's been to an eye doctor um, or has gone through a uh, aviation medical examination will be familiar with these. They're the, the color wheels with all the little dots and they have numbers or letters embedded within them. And you're supposed to be able to say what it is. And some of them are trick ones that don't actually have anything in it. Um, and that way they can tell whether you're able to discriminate between the, the two colors on the, the panel. Um, so this, this individual goes on to say, um, I know what I'm talking about here because I have class one medicals in both the U.S. and Canada. So the same standard applies to both countries. Um, he says there are three tests available to candidates that can determine color efficiency. Um, the problem is uh, most AMEs or many, may, many, maybe some AMEs, I'm not sure, do not know about this. Most only have the dot test because, because it's... Uh, the cheapest test available to doctors, it's the little flip chart. Uh, the next test, which is actually the gold standard when it comes to color blindness, is the Farnsworth D15 color saturation test. And this test has 15 pastel pucks that are numbered 1 to 15. The doctor mixes them up and you match the closest shade to the baseline shade. This test will tell the examiner if you are colorblind or not. The Ishihara test will only tell the examiner if you have a color deficiency. Uh, the last test is the FAA and TC basic test. In Canada, they call it the lantern test. Two shades of green lights, of white and red light. If you can tell the difference between them, you pass. I am color deficient, but I passed the lantern in Farnsworth, but the Ishihara says I have a major uh, blue-green deficiency. He says I researched this like crazy. Uh, da, 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 da. It goes on and on. Um, but anyway, so what he's getting at is that there's different ways to assess or test for, I guess, the degree of colorblindness, because it's not um, just a straightforward thing where people who are colorblind perhaps don't see colors at all. Sometimes it's a discrimination problem between two different colors, with red and green being the most common. Um, unfortunately, we use red and green a lot um, 
in our societies to uh with green being meaning go and red meaning stop and we use that for light signals um and with different they're very common in um uh, approach lighting and nighttime operations as well so you really want to know uh, that your pilot can distinguish between those two colors so what does the faa say about this they say um so basically they say yes the the most common thing is the ishihara um color wheel um but they do have a whole bunch of other ones listed um they have the um there's a richmond pseudo isochromatic plate that's um, a good one yeah I, I don't know any of these to be either. honest so but anyway they, they have like eight different types of um tests that meet their standards for basic vision or for basic color discrimination uh testing so if the applicant does not meet the color vision standards in that testing, they can go ahead and and issue uh, the medical certification, but they have to put the limitations of not valid for night flying and not valid for flying by color signal control. Um, but then they do go on to say that there's specialized operation, operational medical tests for applicants who do not meet the standard. And they do talk about, um, they call it an operational color vision test. So basically the same type of thing where you're trying to see even though you have that color blindness, can you still reliably discriminate between the two colors and recognize them, even if your vision color vision is not the same standard as what would be considered normal? So, I guess the bottom interesting. Stuff. Yeah, the bottom line is, you know, don't give up. If they just give the uh, Ishihara, you know, the one that most places use for color blindness, don't just say, "Oh, I can't see it." Don't give up. There are other avenues to explore. I guess. Exactly. And um, I mean, they can even do it by um, basically field testing. So they can test you with the the light signals to see if you can reliably discriminate between the two. They do also mention that um, some people may have seen these advertised where there are corrective lenses to correct color vision. Uh, the FAA does not allow you to use that as a pilot for color vision. So. No, 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 no. Okay. Let's see. Did I answer this question? I think so. Yeah. His, Basically, uh, his his question was, "Can I be a pilot with color blindness?" Yes. So it's a uh, and even if you yeah. even if you don't meet, um, I, I guess it depends on what type of pilot you would like to be. But if you don't meet the the full standards, you can at least do daytime flying, and you have to have that limitation of you can't use the light gun signals. So, Excellent. That's it. Hey, I know we're over the three hour mark, uh, but I really want to get at least one, maybe two more. I promise we'll be really quick with it. Um, this one is from um, the old Avgeek guy, and he sends in um, a special song for Nick. He says, from Flower Mound, Texas, howdy to Captain Jeff, soon to be Captain Dana, Steph, and oh yeah, Captain Nick. I thought the first one minute, four seconds of this would be great to play for our champion of automation. <laughs> Love you, Nick. Don't let George have all the fun. Adios. And so, hmm, I'm thinking, what is it that he is talking about? So let me uh, play a little bit of this. I've got the push-button blues, the push-button blues. My finger is sore from doing each chore. I just can't push one button more. No, I can't. Button blues. I wish there was something. 
Ah, the push button blues. And that's Jane Jetson. You know, George, his wife, Jane, or Jane, his wife, (laughs) Jane, his wife. Anyway, oh, I thought it, I thought it was the robot housekeeper. Oh, okay, um, don't think so. I forgot what the name of the robot housekeeper is. I don't know either. Oh, Rosie. Rosie, that's oh, it. it? Rosie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know where I pulled that. From, I don't know but, yeah. either, but bravo. <laughs> I haven't watched the Jetsons in years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll put the uh, link to that so you can listen to the entire song, the Push Button Blues, on YouTube. All right, and. Very quickly, one more thing. You guys, you like barbecue, right? Yes. You like parties? I hate yes. barbecue. Yeah. Well, this is from Zach. He uh, He's a structural mechanic in, well, I don't know exactly where he is, but I think he lives up somewhere near here. He says, uh, Mechanic Zach here, and I have an idea for an APG meetup at a big barbecue festival in northern Georgia. My dad and I are teaming up for the Georgia Mountain Egg Fest. And due to the location and the big green egg-centered nature of the event, I thought it would be a great place for a piggybacked APG meetup. Of course, it's not a full meetup, but anyone who might be interested in going anyway would surely like to know if there were some other listeners or crew at the event to hang out with. Let me know what you think. And he signs off by saying, high speed, low drag. Zach Lorden, structural mechanic in Hiawassee. On May 18th and Friday, the 18th of May and Saturday, the 19th, uh, which is the actual event, the Mountain Egg Fest or Festival. And uh, I'm thinking, ooh, that looks like it'd be a lot of fun. So, yeah. So I looked, I didn't know where Hiawassee actually was, but it's up in the uh, mountains, basically kind of Nanahala forest uh, area. Beautiful. Very, very beautiful area. It's kind of right on the border of North Carolina and Georgia. Um, I was like, ooh, I wonder if there's anywhere nearby to fly into. And there's a couple of nearby options for if anyone wanted to fly in, um, general aviation flying anyway. There is the Western Carolina Regional uh, Airport in Andrews, North Carolina, and the Blairsville, uh, Georgia Airport. So that was, those are Kilo Romeo Hotel Papa and Kilo Delta Zulu Juliet. And they both look to be about 13 miles or so from Hiawassee, 13 to 15 miles. Although you have to drive on some interest, at least on the map, the, the roads look a little interesting fun. through the mountains. Fun. Fun. They're fun. And they, they will be, it'll take you more than 13 Dana miles can, of driving. Dana can pick you up on his, uh, on his motorcycle. On the motorcycle, I'm always up that way. On the yeah, it's beautiful country. Yeah, beautiful. So, yeah, those isn't are both your, airports. Hmm? Isn't your egg motorized? <laughs> yes, I, I could actually tow that with me. There you yeah. go, right behind my motorcycle. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be anywhere near that rig. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds stable. Yeah, no. Yeah. I must admit, it's got a little center of gravity. Uh, very good. Forgive me for being a bit uh, English about this, but an egg fest doesn't actually sound very nice. Yeah, so, yeah, so if you if you it didn't is. know it was a, a big green egg, the cooking, the smoking device, it does sound yeah. odd. Like or, there's a festival and we're going to celebrate the the thing that comes out of a chicken, <laughs> the egg? Yeah. No. Yeah, we're going well, to scramble them. You, you, you tend to like my, you know, the barbecue I've cooked for you, so that's come off the big green egg. Yep. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I realized that, but it was just the name yeah. of the egg yeah, was so kind the of egg odd. Egg Actually, when I first saw the when I saw the feedback, I'm thinking, egg, why would we want to go to an egg fest? And they went, oh, big green egg fest. Got it. Yeah, yeah you have to look at the uh, the logo yeah. of the festival. Exactly. Which which looks to me like a cocktail shaker, but that's just me. Yeah, but it, it's like a yeah, cocktail shaker, shaker, but it's a lot bigger and heavier. <laughs> nice big cocktails. Yeah. Wee. <laughs> well, you know what? We're going to seriously consider that, Zach. Thank you for uh, the idea. And... Uh, so maybe we can make that a APG meetup, fly-in, barbecue, eating, beer drinking festival. I'm having. Sounds like all of my favorite things. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm being training, so I don't know what my schedule. Oh, uh, you'll you can get away from training for a couple of days. Colin, sure. Yeah, don't call, call don't do it. Study. Just come up and get drunk with us. Yeah. Oh, I'm not worried about the study. <laughs> worried about being in the sim. Okay. I should be done by that date, and it just really depends on when they slam the OE on me. All right. Well, excellent. It should be done about the 15th or 16th. We'll keep everybody apprised as to uh, what's going on around that time. Okay, that's it. We have several others. Uh, sorry we didn't get to uh, Flying Kiwi's second audio <laughs> that I didn't get to on the last episode either. Um, a very funny piece from G-Man. Um, yes. Anthony um, uh, had an interesting uh, link to... Uh, Acme Red's new love suites. You'll have to wait until next time as we talk about that um, and more good stuff. So uh, if you want to learn more about the show, airlinepilotguy.com. We have uh, apps for the phone and tablet people um, and social media, Dr. Stuff. It's true. Social media. Sorry, my voice did not want to cooperate there for a moment. (laughs) Ah, You're going through uh, adolescence. Surprise. Exactly. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at APG Crew is the handle to get in touch with all of us together there. Uh, you can also head over to Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Uh, join the community, share aviation related stories and commentary. All right. Nice and succinct. And we also have uh, a Slack group and Hillel is the one that came up with it, monitors it, manages it and all that jazz. Here's uh, Hillel. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel, for that. And I guess until next time... It's time for us to say goodbye. Wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Good night. Bye-bye. Good day. Them to their seats. Air 
I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly Boy, I ain't going.